your ride ready for spring driving with Dobbs Spring Break Deals. Money saver deals you can use on Goodyear, Pirelli, Cooper, Michelin, and General Tires. Expert auto service, too. Click on GoToDobbs.com for spring break deals now. Cheap, cheap, fun, fun. Spring is in the air and Dirt Cheap is in your neighborhood ready to deliver the perfect drinks to your doorstep. That's right. All of Dirt Cheap's convenient locations now offer delivery of their wide selections of beers, wines, and all the spirits you need. And if you're like me, nothing hits better in the springtime than a nice weeded bourbon. Ask the friendly staff at Dirt Cheap about their selection of weeders like Maker's Mark, Larceny, and so many others. Download the Dirt Cheap app and order curbside or delivery. Have fun, but be careful out there. For the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Nobody, nobody should feel safe in in our group right now. <laughs> I, I, I mean, a player wise, management wise. Obviously, the coach, the coach has been changed. If if we could move, you know, chairs on the Titanic, I guess we would. It's harder to do. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. The Blues are back, baby. They are back in action tonight. They are going on the road for their final road trip heading into the All-Star break, where Robert Thomas will be representing the team in Toronto. Alex, they've got three games on this road trip. Calgary. Vancouver, Calgary, Canada, if you want want to call it that. Vancouver and then Seattle. And then they've got two more home games to round this bad boy up before we get to the All-Star break. That is in total, if I do the math correct, five games out of the All-Star break. And Alex, this is going to make or break them. It's going to make or break their decision heading into the trade deadline. Because if you look back to last year, Doug Armstrong got some of his shopping done a little bit early. He decided, you know what? I don't want to see this team get back to their winning ways. They have not earned the opportunity to try to get back into the playoff race. February 17th, that was the day that Doug Armstrong decided to send Ryan O'Reilly and Nolachari up to Toronto. That was three games out of the All-Star break. And Alex, the more interesting part of that, it was three wins coming out of the All-Star break for Doug Armstrong. He made the clear and definitive statement at that point in time that basically signaled to everybody, we are sellers. We have a month left prior to the trade deadline. I don't care. This team is not worthy of buying at the trade deadline. We are selling our assets and we're getting it started right now. At that point in the season, Alex, the Blues were two games under 500. They were eight points back of the avalanche for the final spot at the All-Star break in the Western Conference playoffs. As of today... You're three points back of the Coyotes. You've played one fewer game than them, so you're basically right there with the wild card standings. How much of a factor do you believe this year the next five games will uh, play going into the trade deadline? It's everything. Uh, And then look at the opponents that you're taking on. One of them is a team that's at the top of the Pacific, so not one of it's not going to do much damage to you, but the other two teams, Calgary and Seattle, both sit one point ahead of you and both sit four points out of a wild card spot. So if you lose to say Seattle and Calgary, well, now you've just put yourself down an even deeper hole of having to jump over three teams to get into a wild card spot. And I love that you went and looked at that one from last year, but the one that I always go back to also is 2018 when they traded Paul Stastny away. Mm-hmm. The team was one point out of a playoff spot 
when they traded Paul Stastny. They were one game under 500. They had lost four in a row, but they were one game away from wild card spot. And Doug said, you know what? This team's not good enough and I can't invest into it. I need to trade and get assets. I think Doug's already made his decision, but I think the team can change his decision. And these five games can do it because you're taking on four teams that are all playoff contenders. And then one that's a Columbus Blue Jackets team. But the Columbus Blue Jackets wiped the floor with you the last time you played. But if you go out there and you lay an egg against Calgary tonight, you lay an egg against the Seattle Kraken and don't look like a a competitive playoff team, then it's a selling team because those are the teams those are the teams you're fighting with. To me, it doesn't matter what you do to Vancouver. It doesn't matter what you do, although LA is a wild card team right now. It's Seattle and Calgary. And if you go out there and don't show any fire or competition that you want to be a playoff team, then Doug's going to say, no, we're going to start selling. And it wouldn't surprise me if he sold fast. I, I think he's already determined they're sellers. And I don't think anything can change in the next five games because why did he do it last year? He did it because they were inconsistent. Now, they were more inconsistent than this year's squad because that team would have like seven game valleys where they'd lose seven in a row. But this team just continues this kind of roller coaster effect. Win one, lose one. Win one, lose one. Win one, lose one. And he knows that that's not going to do much in the playoffs. He can look at the roster and be honest with himself and go, this team's not doing anything in the playoffs. Even though he believes in Jordan Bennington, like we all do in this room, that, hey, he gets in the playoffs, he can probably carry you through a series. He knows they're not going to do much meaningful in the playoffs still with Jordan Bennington. So no matter what happens in these five games, I'm glad you brought up the Paul Stastny year because I think they could potentially do well in these five games, be right around that playoff picture. And I still think Doug Armstrong is going to go worse sellers. The best case scenario for this team is Army says, you know what? Let's just let it ride, and I'm going to stay pat, but I don't see him doing that. And I don't either. I, I think he, if it were best case scenario, he sells off, sells off the UFAs. Scandella, Kapanen, that's what happens. But are people buying? That's, that's I guess, my question. Is I think like, somebody buys Scandella. I don't think anybody's sure. going to be interested. He's not even in your lineup half the time right now. Yeah. So, like, sure, absolutely. I, so I would have deep no problem defense, with man. Well, yeah, I mean, we got Scott Perunovich. Who else are you selling? I think that's the that's the big question heading into this trade deadline is, okay, so you're selling Scandella. Sure, you get like a sixth round pick in return and you'll eat half of the salary. It's fine. Other than that, what are people buying from your roster? If we're talking about the pending UFAs, Sonny, no. are you trading Sonny? I would. I mean, I, I would just keep him around. Oh, I would. Yeah. I would trade Sunny because I. I think it's. Just I think you gain have an asset, but you get nothing in return. Yeah, I don't think if you're, you're getting... trading Oscar Sundquist. You're getting like a seventh round pick, and yeah. is at that least really it's a worth shot anything? in the dark in the draft. Yeah. That would yeah, be my. Because I mean, like, here's my thought process on Sunny. I'm just gonna bring him back at the end of the year. Yeah, right, which is why I would just keep him around. Yeah, I would just keep uh, him. A seventh round pick does nothing. For he me. was traded to Minnesota for a fourth round draft pick last year, and in Detroit he was like 21 points. So like he wasn't doing much. That was a fourth round pick. I don't think you're going to get a fourth round pick because he's a year older. What does a fifth round pick do for you in this retool? I would rather keep Sonny around my younger players, and frankly, I would approach him with a contract extension. Yeah, I would just do what you did last year with, uh, what's his with Sammy Blay. Yeah. Give him a one-year deal, a million bucks. Let's keep him around for another season. He can center your fourth line. You know exactly what role he's in. He can continue being a good guy in the locker room. You're going to lose a lot down the stretch, most likely. So if you're going to have that, Oscar Sundquist is a good guy to have around, right? They're paying Matt Carpenter this year to be a friend for Nolan Arenado. Pay Oscar Sundquist to be a friend for the guys that are in the in the locker room. We know my thoughts on being a friend. <laughs> Fair, but everybody needs a friend, man. So this gets back to the question: Not for that money. What are you selling? Like, if you're gonna go that route, last year you had Vladimir Tarasenko and Nico Mikola and Nola Chari and Ryan O'Reilly. Like, you had guys that had real value in um, Barbashev. 
that had real value but at I don't, the trade deadline. But I don't think you're what selling. What are you doing this year? But you're not selling these guys for value. You're sending these guys to open up playing spots. That's but what you're selling who? them for. It doesn't matter. You, and minor league guys. Like, no, it's the, it's going to be, you're going to call up some of these other guys in the minor leagues. You probably give a Bull Duke an opportunity post-trade deadline. It doesn't seem like they want to, though. Like well, He's not even doing all that well right now down in the He's AHL. playing better right now, but I, you're opening up more playing spots like that. I mean, and granted, we're talking about one player right now at the forward position. We're talking about Kapanen, you get rid of Scandella and you just let Perunovic and Kessel play the rest of sure. the season. You trade Kapanen when Snuggerud finishes his year. He either comes here or he goes to the minors. But you're opening up one spot on the forward. It's one spot, though, and I don't think it really matters. You're not selling anything to get valuable pieces in return like you were last year. If you did, though, if you wanted to do that, you'd probably be selling guys that you don't want to talk about selling. Because the players Bruno? in the the players that the Blues have that would be valuable. T-Bone doesn't understand. No, he doesn't get it. What? The guys that you have that would be valuable are the guys that are actually helping you through this re- retool, rebuild, whatever you want to call it. It's Jordan Bennington. That'd be one guy that you could sell off at the deadline. We'll get into that a little further later on today. It's Colton Pareko. Teams would value having a 6'5 defenseman. Don't you dare. Play tough minutes. Stay at home. Guy. Like that. There's value there. I don't think that the Blues want to or will trade him. Jordan Cairo, Robert Thomas. I don't, I don't think we're going down that path. The one other guy that I do find to be interesting in this conversation, Alex, would be what's going to be the future of Pavel Buchnevich? And we've talked about this before. He's got $5.8 million left on his contract for next season. And the Blues will then have to make a decision going into the summer. Do you resign him? Is he a part of the long-term future of the St. Louis Blues? It's about $8 bucks, probably what you're going to be talking about for a contract extension with him would be my guess. We asked Chris Kerber about this a few weeks ago, Alex, and here's what he had to say about the possibility of re-signing Pavel Buchnevich on a long-term deal. He, I think, is the best 200-foot player that the St. Louis Blues have in terms of adding that with the skill and point totals he can provide playing every scenario. Um, His size, his care, uh, he's a student of the game in so many ways. If you're in a transition now, that's great. He's one of the guys that are going to see you through it and come out of it. And I hope that he wants to stay in blue and the Blues want him for a long time because I think it's a fantastic fit. Alex, over on The Athletic earlier today, Jeremy Rutherford had a great piece asking fans a bunch of questions for his survey. And one of those questions was, should the Blues re-sign Pavel Buchnevich when he is eligible for a contract extension on July 1st or trade him to help bolster the roster? About 60% of those responses said re-sign him, so they were in favor of it, but it wasn't by as wide of a margin as I might have otherwise anticipated. As you look at where the Blues are at right now, how do you view what it would mean to trade Pavel Buchnevich and potentially even doing so at the trade deadline? I think you're at a spot where you have to look at your top line and pick between Buchnevich and Cairo. And I know that sounds weird to say, but I don't know... If you feel comfortable moving forward with this team, moving into a competitive window with those three guys, your top line, because that's what it's going to be. You're going to have three guys making $8 million or more, and you're going to be paying Pavel Buchnevich that money for eight years, and he's going to be 30 years old. Do you feel comfortable with that? And trade a Jordan Cairo if you can find something out there, or do you feel comfortable with Thomas and Cairo and trade a Pavel Buchnevich? The other question is you got to ask, what's the return? I don't know what the return would look like if you go down the path of moving on from a Jordan Cairo. Oh, oh sorry. Cairo. Should have listened. Well, Come you don't on. do that an awful lot around these parts, but that's okay, buddy. But 
I mean, a couple years ago, maybe you could have been one for one for a really good player with Jordan Cairo. Now, maybe not so much. But if you trade Pavel Buchnevich, you could chuck, man. You could chuck Clayton Keller, Keller, Mitch Marner. Just could have kept going down the list there. But let's go down the Pavel Buchnevich front. I, I think even though he's having a bad season, he's making a very reasonable $5.8 million that a team would look at and say, well, that could play in our top six. And he's a bad season is a pace for 25 goals, 62 points and a plus 13 on a bad team. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, like it's pretty good. And a team would say, well, we need that. And that might be, frankly, is from what I've seen so far, the best available position player next to Jake Gensel at the trade deadline. And he's got a year of control that I don't think the Blues would eat any of the contract, but maybe they would to make the, the return better. You're looking at what Timo Meyer got from the New Jersey Devils. You're looking at what the Winnipeg Jets just did with Pierre-Luc Dubois, the one that you brought up to me. If you want to expedite or retool, you're going to have to move one of those two because I, I just don't think you can have all three of them making eight or more million dollars and and tell people that you're a playoff team soon. Pierre-Luc Dubois was traded this past summer to the LA Kings from the Winnipeg Jets and immediately was handed an eight-year contract worth eight and a half million dollars per season, a no-move clause for the first four years of that contract. That feels very Pavel Buchnevichy. And the return on that Pierre-Luc Dubois deal, by the way, we talked about it at the time. It has come true to fruition. We're wrong a lot, but we were right on this. It has bolstered that Winnipeg Jets roster in a way where they are now arguably the best team in the Western Conference. So if I told you today the Blues can get for Booch roughly the equivalent of what the Winnipeg Jets were able to get for Pierre-Luc Dubois, T-Bone, is that something that it would interest you at this year's trade deadline? Yeah, it would interest me because I I, I think a lot of fans view a Booch-Navich trade as a, oh, they're, not, they're going from retool to rebuild. And I view it more as an accelerant on the retool. So I, I'm interested in doing it. I don't think you would see the immediate return that Winnipeg got to where you become the best team in the West sure. because you still have some holes on the roster you got to fill. But I think you go from potentially being a team that is still a bottom dweller next season to if you squint hard, if you go, okay, they could actually be a wild card team. And then you see how you kind of shape out your bottom six. I, I'm open to the idea of trading Pavel Buchnevich because I tend to agree with Alex. I don't know if you can have three guys on the top line making eight plus million dollars. And just the way Army has operated in the past, he doesn't like to give out contracts to guys in their 30s. So if I'm reading the tea leaves here, and if Doug Armstrong has any question of whether A, Pavel Buchnevich would want to resign in St. Louis, or B, that he has any doubt about giving him a contract extension, this is the deadline to do it because of that extra year of control. I, I think Blues fans are a little confused right now because, like, looking through that that fan survey that JR put out there, like, Blues fans don't think this team can be competitive this year. Okay, great. Blues fans don't want to go through a full rebuild. They want this to be faster. Okay, great. But we don't want to trade Pavel Buchnevich. Like, all three of those things can't survive in one universe. If you don't want to trade Pavel Buchnevich, it means you believe this team is competitive, so you keep them together. But if you do want to trade Pavel Buchnevich, but you don't want to rebuild, okay, well, that means you're not comfortable with this roster. I I think... Everybody has to come to terms with where this Blues team is at. We've talked a lot about how it feels like a roster issue. To fix that, you've got to bring in different roster players. And you're not bringing in a roster player for 
Kapanen. You're not bringing in a roster player for Yakub Verana. You're bringing in roster players for players that don't match the trajectory of what you believe this Blues team is going to have. Somebody on the text line asked, guys, what was the return when Pierre-Luc Dubois was traded to the LA Kings? They got in return. Gabe Velarde, a former first-round pick. 26 points. Centerman. He is 24 years old. This year, he has 20 points in 26 games, and he is a plus 18 on the ice for the Winnipeg Jets. They also got Alex Iafalo, who is a 30-year-old center, played 45 games, has 17 points, is a plus when he is on the ice this season. And then they got another guy, former first-round pick, Rasmus Kupari, mm-hmm. who is not a big piece of what they're doing offensively right now. He's played he's in just 19 player. games, but he's a guy that might have a future with them. And on top of all of that, three guys that can play center for them, three forwards that are going to be a part of their future. They also got a second round draft pick. So three players that are helping them now and a second round pick in the future for a guy that was immediately going to sign a long-term contract extension with the blues. And I think you could make an argument that Buchnevich is actually a better player than Pierre-Luc Dubois. He's going to have another year under his contract, and you get him for this uh, this postseason, and then you get to sign him to that long-term extension. You could get something similar, if not more, for Pavel Buchnevich to what the Winnipeg Jets got for Pierre-Luc Dubois, in my opinion. So it, it's a lot. And if that is the kind of return that you're seeking, that's the kind of return you could get for Buchnevich. I, I think the Blues have to take a serious look at it. I would not want to trade him. You guys know my affinity for that player. I love Pavel Buchnevich. But when you get into these spots, you got to make really difficult decisions. It would have made a lot of sense for the Blues to keep uh, last year Barbie around. But given where they're at in their rebuild, it didn't make sense for them to do so. It made more sense to trade him off for a real asset. If you're going to make deals, and this is why I pushed back on the idea of like, hey, okay, you're going to trade all of these UFAs. What are you getting? The guy that you could actually get something for that helps to, to your point, T-Bone, accelerate this rebuild, retool. The guy that you could do that for is unfortunately Pavel Buchnevich. If it were me, I would explore the Kairou front first because I would rather build around a, even, even though I know he's 30, would rather build around a guy like Pavel Buchnevich because I've seen that. I've seen that competitive edge, and he does everything for you. That's the type of player I want, but I don't know if you're going to get the same return for a guy like Jordan Cairo. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're going to talk to Jeremy Rutherford, Blues insider for The Athletic. His piece over on The Athletic earlier today was part of what led to our conversation about what the Blues could do at the deadline. We'll ask him what he found to be most interesting from your answers in his poll over at The Athletic. But coming up next, there are four coaches, four teams, four coaches that remain in the NFL playoffs. What can teams that are currently looking for a coach learn from the coaches that remain? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What happens every time a coach gets hired? The first thing they say is we have to create a culture of winning. What Dan Campbell has actually done is accomplish that in a place where it appeared it would never happen. Took over a place that has the most famous culture of losing in the sport. They hadn't won a playoff game in 30 years. So whatever it is we say about him, whatever credit he's getting, it's not enough. Because he has done something that I think most people would have thought was impossible. 
Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. That voice you just heard was Mike Greenberg on ESPN the other day talking about the value that Dan Campbell has brought to the Detroit Lions. Alex, when you look at the coaches that remain, it's four damn good ones that remain in this year's postseason. It's Andy Reid, it's John Harbaugh, Dan Campbell, and Kyle Shanahan. They're four very different coaches, though, that come from very different backgrounds and very different experiences. Andy Reid is an older coach that was always an offensive mind, never was a play caller, though, prior to becoming a head coach for the Philadelphia Eagles. But when hired in Kansas City, he had 15 years of legitimate experience and success in his tenure with the Philadelphia Eagles. John Harbaugh, a former special teams coordinator, that was a program builder. He was brought in to be the CEO with the Baltimore Ravens and has done an excellent job his entire tenure there with the Ravens. You could make an argument. He's basically been, since the day he was hired, a top five coach in the NFL. Dan Campbell. A laughing stock. The moment that he was hired in Detroit, that became one of everybody's favorite coaches in the NFL over the past few seasons. Yeah, they're knee biters, and they have taken on his personality. And then there's Kyle Shanahan, who had the terrible moment in the Super Bowl with the Atlanta Falcons, but has been considered one of the brightest offensive minds in the NFL for the past at least half decade Got the job in San Francisco, and after getting a quarterback finally, has had nothing but success. Alex, the question that I wanted to ask you, based on the four teams that are remaining and the four coaches that are remaining, there's a lot of teams that are currently in the market for a new head coach. What can they learn from the coaches that are still there? Is there any common theme that you believe teams should be looking for based upon these coaches? I mean, I feel like the coach has got to match the personality of the team because all four of those really feel like they match that personality, whether it's the uh, offensive style that is the Kansas City Chiefs and the gritty, grinded-out physical presence that Dan Campbell provides, or like you just mentioned with Harbaugh and that CEO in terms of the leadership. I feel like the coach has to, has to match the identity of the team, and a great example for me is when Cliff Kingsbury was there in Arizona. Like That just never matched the identity of what they were trying to. And the problem is that his identity was not a good one. With the quarterback that was there. So maybe it's also about the quarterback that's with them. And Kyle Shanahan's the exception to that rule because we've seen multiple quarterbacks and have success. It's just the system in place. I could argue Andy Reid and John Harbaugh as well. I was about to say, all of these really have done that, except for Uh, Dan Dan Campbell. Campbell, And and I feel like Dan Campbell's the one I, I gravitate towards the most. Because it's a team that wasn't expected to be very good, but he got them all to buy into that personality of the head coach. Like all the other ones, you see the elite talent that they have, and you're like, okay, it makes sense that they're having success with this. But Dan Campbell's the one that I look at and say, if I'm a team that is middling, if I'm a team like the L.A. Chargers that like, look, I feel like my team's good, but all we do is we're just average every year. I need to get a coach like that that can come in and create an identity for my roster so that they can start to do something consistent. I'm kind of on the same path as Alex T-Bone. And it, I used to be a guy, and I'm still this way, I would lean this direction, that would say, hey, find the best offensive mind that you can find that is on the market and just go hire him. Because if you don't, then you're going to get a good offensive coordinator in under your head coach. He's going to get hired in two or three years, and now you got to replace that guy, and you're going to continue looking for the guy that you just lost, right? Because when you don't have an offensive mind inside of your locker room, you're always looking for it, and you want that guy to be able to pair with your quarterback. I still think that's really important. I'm coming off of it a bit, though, because I think it's more about leadership than anything else. If you find a guy that is a great leader of men, And you find a guy that can build a great staff that coaches wants to coach with. 
I think that's the most important thing that you can find because Dan Campbell, I wouldn't consider him to be this like excellent, bright offensive mind, but coaches seem to really gravitate towards wanting to coach with yeah. him. Well, look at Ben, ben Johnson, Johnson he stayed. literally said, I could get this job in Carolina or I could stay here for another year. I'm going to take a pay cut to stay here, but I believe in Dan Campbell and what we're building here. And so I'm going to stay for another year. I'll be a hot name again next year. And he wanted to have that opportunity. You look at the coaches that have coached under the, uh, the 49ers with Kyle Shanahan. Man, he seems kind of like a, a jerk to work with, but coaches seem to stay there quite a while, and they have a lot of success under Kyle Shanahan. He has built a lot of careers from his time working with other people. Look at Mike McDaniel and what he's doing right now in Miami. That's the latest example. The Chiefs, look at all the coaches that have come from there. The 14, or the Ravens, look at all the coaches. I think the biggest thing that you can find is a great leader of men that is able to be a magnetic personality for both coaches and players. That is hard to quantify. And it's really difficult to find who that guy is based upon an interview here or there. But that's what you're looking for. Find that guy. Don't necessarily just look for the next great wonderkind. That's the offensive mind. What's his face in Houston? Tobago Ryans is that way exactly. too. I yeah. feel like he's going to be that next guy like Dan Campbell was. Yeah. And with everything that you just said, because I do think there are certain spots that need a culture guy to come in and really build that staff around him and then just get the culture right, fit the identity of the team, as Alex mentioned. I still would lean towards the offensive side of things. And to your point, you mentioned how coordinators change so often. I saw a stat today that with the hiring of, uh, what's his name, leaving Cincinnati to go to Tennessee, since 2022, every team has changed their offensive coordinator at least once. So that tells me right there, like, the way I kind of view it, at least like while we're going through this coaching cycle right now, is if you feel like you're just a coach away, like you got the roster, like I'm looking at ULA Chargers, I'm going, I probably want an offensive mind there. I want a young offensive mind that's going to work with that quarterback, and then we can figure out the defense from there and go get the defensive coordinator because that position doesn't change as much as the OC does. When I'm a team that's kind of in what I would call turmoil, which is like the Titans who are getting ready to go through a rebuild, uh, the Washington Commanders who are under a new ownership group, I look at those teams and go, if I bring in an offensive-minded guy and go get the next big thing there – is he going to have success? I'd much rather get a culture guy there because you're going to go through some tough times and you need a Dan Campbell that's going to be there that would lead that team and be able to get those guys motivated still throughout that because I don't think an offensive coordinator or an offensive-minded type coach, maybe he could work there if he is a culture guy as well. But like when I think Ben Johnson, I just go, that's the big, sexy offensive name that people want to hire. I think he fits best on a roster that has the pieces around him. While the coaches that are like the Bill, not the Bill Belichick type because he wants to win, but like the Harbaugh, he feels more of like a culture guy i would want that kind of coach on these teams that are in turmoil right now and the funny thing is i would go the opposite like i, I want jim harbaugh if i'm trying to win right now mm-hmm. because we know he's got a limited amount of time where what he does works like you're you're basically saying we are on a five-year timeline if we hire jim harbaugh because everything's probably going to implode at the end just like it did in san francisco it typically does he he, he rubs people the wrong way but it works the way that he works he, he's going to win for you so if you're San Francisco, or excuse me, if you're the Los Angeles Chargers, Seattle, Atlanta, if you're somebody that's looking at Jim Harbaugh, you better be ready to win. I'm not hiring that dude if I'm Carolina. I'm not hiring him if I'm Washington because I'm not getting the front end of the winning because my roster isn't good enough while I am probably still going to have to deal with the back end of not just the losing, but also the implosion within our entire front office. So <laughs> it, it's a really difficult it's a, it's a difficult thing to be able to square as a front office of deciding, okay, what are we valuing for the right now? And so if I'm the Chargers, which sounds like 
He's going to get a second interview there. He's probably one of my top targets because of the culture building that he can do there. You've got the quarterback in place. Yeah, the roster is in need of an influx of talent, but you're not that far away. You could do one year of a retool, and by 2025, you're back to winning in a significant way if you're the Chargers. So I would do that. The one other thing that I wanted to get to before we talk to Jeremy Rutherford real quick, man, it sounds like nobody's going to hire Bill Belichick. And I am shocked by this, That's man. wild. He is available as just money. You just got to pay him money. And he'll come coach your team for 2024. That's it. And it seems like nobody's going to do it. The Falcons have put out interview requests for the two coordinators for the Lions. And I'm not saying they're wrong for doing so. But what that means is they're not hiring Bill Belichick this week because they can't hire anybody. They can't have those interviews done until next week. The Chargers, it sounds like, are honing in on Jim Harbaugh. The only other teams that remain are Seattle, Washington, and Carolina. And if I'm Bill Belichick, I'm not taking Washington or Carolina. There's no reason for me to go coach those teams. And Seattle, I don't think, is going to do it. So you're really talking about only Atlanta that is available to him. And, man, that is a crazy thing to me. If I'm one of these other teams, like if I'm Buffalo, they're not going to do this because they had a bunch of success at the end of the season. I would consider firing Sean McDermott and just saying, you know what? My roster is pretty good. I've got a great quarterback. I'm going to go hire Bill Belichick. Run it back. I, I cannot believe that they might go an entire cycle in the NFL with Bill Belichick available, the greatest coach in the history of football, and he might not get hired by anybody. Didn't he do two interviews with Atlanta, though? Mm -hmm. So so couldn't this be that other teams see that landscape and say, like, look, nobody's hiring Bill Belichick. He's going to be there for us. So let's see if Ben Johnson or the defensive coordinator for Detroit is good enough, and if we don't feel like they're better than Belichick, we go back to Bill. I mean, you know what it is, though. Like, I, I don't know. I Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe people are just dragging their feet on hiring, you know, the greatest coach in the history of the sport. But is it dragging feet or is it he's only going to go coach for a couple of teams and you know that you're one of the very few teams he's willing to go to? But if you're Atlanta, what are you going to learn? Like, you've already done an interview with both of these guys. You're going to have a second interview with them to find out, hey, maybe they can convince us in this 45-minute Zoom yeah. that they're better to better equipped to coach disagree. our team than Bill Belichick. No, I think what's happening is the front office there in Atlanta – got the ear of the ownership group and said, hey, we don't need Bill Belichick because if he comes here, they're probably going to fire us. Yeah. And I think they're, they're deciding, okay, we'll stick with Terry Fontenot, their general manager, over hiring the greatest coach in the history of the sport. I think that's crazy. I think we're going to look back on this offseason and say to ourselves, man, nobody hired Bill Belichick? And we're going to just be dumbfounded by it. It's going to be a lot like when we look back at the Lamar situation from last offseason yeah. where it was, how does nobody offer this guy a contract? Washington. Hey, guess who fired their coach because didn't have a quarterback? Atlanta. Carolina. And now you look at Bill Belichick again and you go, why nobody jump on this? I, I think it's a power struggle thing. That's the biggest thing for me. Is Jer- I think he doesn't want to do that. Jeremy Rutherford, Blues Insider, next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. News, notes, and nuggets. It's time for the Rutherford Report with our Blues Insider, Jeremy Rutherford. Brought to you by Scott Lee Heating Company, a proud Mitsubishi Electric Elite Contractor. on BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN, and we're happy to go out to the 101 ESPN hotline where Jeremy Rutherford is waiting on the line for us. We always appreciate his time. You can read his work over at The Athletic, where he had a piece earlier today breaking down the Blues fan survey results. Some really good stuff over there. JR, appreciate the time as always, man. When you looked at what the responses were for your, your survey for fans, 
What stood out to you most? What was the most revealing uh, thing that you found from this? Well, I think a couple things, BK. Thanks uh, for having me, guys. I think uh, just looking at the survey now, uh, a couple towards the top of the survey, did Armstrong, Doug, Doug Armstrong, make the right decision to fire Craig Berube? You know, uh, we were at the arena one night where they showed Doug on the Jumbotron, and, and the fans were booing. Obviously, that's, you know, just the, the folks who are inside the arena. Uh, but I think that uh, you felt like people were saying that he did not make the right decision based on how, what the reaction was immediately after he made that move. And you look at this today, and we uh, we had 1,500 people respond to the survey, and just 27% said yes, that he made the right decision to, mm. to fire Craig Burby. 30% said no. Uh, a little bit of a caveat here, 42% saying remains to be seen. So I think that's a little bit of a shift in public opinion, maybe based on what they've seen from the team, the power play improving uh, so on and so forth since Drew Bannister took over. Also a little bit surprised with uh, uh, Joel Quinville. I threw out his name as a possibility. Would you be interested? 58% said no, uh, 41% yes. And then lastly, the confidence level in Doug Armstrong during this retool, uh, he said that uh, the, the voters said that the 37% give Doug Armstrong still a four on a one to five scale with five being full confidence. That's 37% giving him a four. So would have thought maybe there would have been some more threes in that vote and, and a few fours, uh, but uh, definitely the majority went to the fours. Jay, the part that, that really surprised me, and we talked about this on last minute blues podcast earlier today uh, is I kind of feel like the fans are a little confused because they, they voted that, you know, this, this, this was the season they kind of expected that they don't want to see a full rebuild. They want this to be a retool, but they don't want the Blues to trade a Pavel Buchnevich or a Jordan Bennington when it gets to the trade deadline. And although I think they're very smart with the Bennington side of it, it feels like the Blues don't want to move on from the players that they have, but don't want to accept that this team is, is stuck in what could be a rebuild. Yeah, so there's 15 questions in the poll, and if you look at all the responses, as Alex is saying, and you just try to conceptualize what a majority of fans are looking at in terms of the big picture, that's exactly it. They want to be competitive. They don't want Doug Armstrong to go into a full rebuild. As I mentioned, they're confident in Doug doing this, uh, but they don't want to trade Buchnevich. They don't want to trade Bennington, which falls in line with what we were saying a second ago, that they want to remain competitive. Uh, yet, but yet the, the, the vote says that they also don't think that this season is a year that the Blues should add anything. Uh, they don't believe they'll make the playoffs. So it's kind of uh, a situation where you look at the fans' response in a whole and say that uh, – they believe that they can still be good in the next two to three years. This can be faster than a rebuild, and you need guys like Buchnevich and Bennington being a part of this thing to get it going. That That's kind of what the uh, what it looks like on the whole. And, JR, I feel like that's in line with what they said about Doug Armstrong. Like, if you believe in Doug Armstrong and you're listening to what he's saying, he, he has essentially said what you just mentioned there, which is, hey, we're going to be – you know, two to three years in this retool, we believe that we've got some of the core pieces of what can be a, a contender again in a few years. So I, I almost feel like Blues fans are just falling in line with what Doug Armstrong has been saying. Is that a fair read? Yeah, I think so. And, and it's pretty impressive because, uh, you know, he's had a lot of success and he's had a lot of fans. I remember joking with Army at a 
coffee shop one day. I said, what do you think of this uh, in Army We Trust? And, you know, he said that, well, if you're going to believe that, you got to believe the other fans that say, uh, you know, Army is this or that. So, um, you know, but by and large, people have stuck by him. And even with the firing of a popular coach, they still believe in the moves he can make with the roster. Now, that's not to say that people aren't disappointed or, or look at some of these moves the past few years and, and say that, hey, this is what put the Blues in the position and Army Army's decision-making has kind of put them in the spot, but they believe that he's been the guy over the years who's been able to uh, respond to these situations and act boldly and act quickly. So, you know, I think everything we just talked about, guys, paints to everyone hoping that the Blues can be uh, competitive in the next couple of years and not go through uh, what, what what could take four or five years. Jer, how critical is this, uh, I'd say, road trip where they've got three games with Calgary, Vancouver, and Seattle, but let's also add in that L.A. Kings and Columbus Blue Jackets before the All-Star break? Yeah, I think if you look at this trip, Vancouver's the, the team that sticks out, obviously. Uh, Calgary, even though they've made a bit of a push here lately, they've they've lost a couple and scuffling. Same with uh, Seattle. I think they got up to, what, nine or ten points, uh, straight games of the point. And uh, they've lost, uh, what, four in a row, I think, until uh, a day or two ago. Uh, so I think then you look at L.A., they've been scuffling. There's some winnable games in the Blues' last five before they go to this 10-day break with the All-Star game and, and the bye week, of course. And, you know, what are you, about five points out of that second wild card right now? So, you know, hypothetically, looking at the situation, you could uh, put yourself in, in a decent position. I still think big picture, you know, this this is what it is. Armstrong's going to let it play out. you got 20 games left before the trade deadline. i got to believe that in his mind he already knows that you know, he's either going to stand pat and let this team see what it can do, or if the opportunity presents itself, he could start to make some uh, some changes at the at the deadline with guys who he doesn't foresee being here uh, on next season's roster. So we'll see what happens in, in these last 20 before the deadline, but I do agree with you that these last five are a big deal. JR, the final question that I've got for you, and we're talking to Jeremy Rutherford, Blues insider for The Athletic. You can go read his piece right now on The Athletic. If you go to the St. Louis tab, uh, it's the, the fan survey. The results are in. 1,500 people uh, responded in this survey, a bunch of different questions about the Blues, how they're feeling about this team and its future. We talked a little bit earlier about, like, okay, if you did decide to sell at the trade deadline, what are you actually selling? And most of what we came up with was, like, Marco Scandella, maybe some of the pending UFAs, like Kasperi Kapanen, that, that kind of thing. If they decided to sell in a more significant way, you're you're probably talking about Pavel Buchnevich, would be my guess, Jr. Do do you think that is something that could actually get done at the deadline, or is that more of an off-season conversation? No, if that's a conversation at all, I think it's definitely an off-season one, and in particular for this reason, uh, you got to sell when he's high. He's a much better player than he's showing right now. And while teams, I think, would be excited to, to get a Pavel Buchnevich and maybe even at the deadline and have a uh, year-plus of, of control of him, um, you know, I think that you got to sell him when he, when he's playing better and, uh, that's not the case right now. So, you know, I think there's probably three tiers of this and you're right. There's not nearly as much activity expected as there was last year. Uh, but maybe Scandella in terms of a guy who's actually playing and, and, uh, is a UFA Kapanen, you know, could be some interest, obviously not with, uh, Verana, you know, then the next tier, um, you have, uh, like a sod or somebody who still has term left, whether it be a Krug. Uh, who might not be as big of a name as this next tier, and that next tier to me would be the the Pareko, the Buchnevich, the Bennington, those types of guys. So I don't think we're going to see those types of moves until the summer, uh, if we see them at all. To me, the Blues are looking at a situation at the deadline where it's probably like a Scandella 
maybe a Kapanen, and then perhaps you get into the Krugs and or Sods. So, so JR, I, I said this earlier when we were talking, and I'm, I'm curious if you think I'm, I'm outlandish or if I'm kind of spot on with this. So I, I feel like when you look at this roster and you know what that contract extension is going to look like for Pavel Buchnevich, if you're Doug Armstrong, you're going to have to decide between one of Buch or Kairou. Does it feel that way? Well, I always tell you you're spot on, right? That's I told true. You. <laughs> that's, that's true. You're my hype yeah. man. Yeah, no, it's it's a situation with Buchnevich where every team, especially the Blues, you know, it's a great fit, like Curb said in the soundbite. Uh, you want to keep this guy on your team. Uh, but I think you got to look at the details, and the details are he would be 30 when the contract starts. It's probably, you know, an eight-year deal. It could be it could be $8 million plus. Then you got the three big guys with the $8 million plus. Even though the cap's going up, that's a lot of, that's a lot of money for, for those three guys. And then where are the Blues in the next couple of years? I mean, is this team competing in the first two or three years of that Buchnevich eight-year contract? You know, I, I don't know. So um, I think it's a question that we probably didn't think we'd be facing or, or attempting to answer at this point. Everybody would be saying, oh, resign him, resign him. But I don't think that anybody expected this drop-off in the last year and a half, and so I think it becomes a realistic question. JR, we appreciate the time as always, man. We'll be looking forward to all of your work over the next five games as we head into this all-star break. Thanks for joining us today. We'll talk with you again next week, my friend. Yep, good stuff. Thanks, guys. You got it. It's Jeremy Rutherford, Blues Insider for The Athletic. Again, if you want to check out his fan survey that just posted earlier this morning, you can do that over at The Athletic, or you can find the link on Twitter at JP Rutherford. Alex, do you think that the Blues are going to have to make that call? you got to make a decision of we're building around one of, not both of, Buchnevich and Kyra. Uh, unless they show a top-line ability, I do. And I think that's why you'll probably see them not bring back Pavel Buchnevich is because they feel like, nope, Thomas and Kyra are guys, and we can't pay this one $8 million. But, yeah, I do, I do feel like if this season is another underwhelming one and these guys finish where you're less than 25 goals, you're going to look at this and say, can we afford to have these three guys at $8 million with our team moving forward? And I think when you think about it that way, <laughs> Blaze fans are not going to like what I'm about to say, but it's the reality. One of those players is more value via trade than the other. I like, agree. If, if you're trading Pavel Buchnevich, either at the deadline or the offseason, and I think Jared's probably right. I think it's more of an offseason conversation. If you're going to trade him, you're going to get a massive haul in return, man. $5.8 million next year. Then that team can re-sign him on a long-term deal. He is... Still an excellent player. And yeah, I agree with Jerry. He hasn't had his best season. But even in his down year, he's on pace for 25 goals and a plus like 15 on the ice on a below average team. And plays a 200-foot game. Helps you on the power play. Helps you on the penalty kill. Does everything you're looking for from a player. Meanwhile, if you trade for Jordan Cairo, he's already got the contract in place. He's a bit of a liability defensively. He has an on and off switch that is erratic at best. And while, yes, a good goal scorer has not been an elite goal scorer so far this season, and you'd like to see more from his all-around game. Does not help you on the penalty kill. Hasn't really shown an ability to help you on the power play so far this year. There's just a lot more questions there, and when that player's coming with a, what, seven-year, $8 million contract per year, there's less value in that. So the return that you're going to get for Buchnevich could actually accelerate your rebuild. The return that you're going to get for Kairou is more of just a... 
Hope. Well, we don't have to worry about that money on our books anymore kind of a conversation. Well, and you're going to bring in somebody that you're hoping you can get the best out of that you're getting in return because it's going to be another player that might not be living up to his expectations. Real quick, somebody texted in and said, Alex, I don't understand how they the Blues can't afford three guys with $8 million and Toronto has three guys at over $10 million. First of all, you can't afford three guys at $8 million if they're playing like three guys that make $10 million. Like Matthews, Marner, and Nylander all play like they deserve their amount of money, which is why they have those guys on those contracts because they don't care what their bottom six looks like. They're winning or losing because of Matthews, Marner, and Nylander. Can I give you their contracts for their defensive core? Yeah. Because that's the real reason. Yeah. Seven and a half, five, two, one, 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 one. And you know what their problem is? Coltaining and defense. Yeah. Like they're, they're and paying that's... nothing for their defensive core and they're paying nothing for their goalies. Right. Because they know that the whole way they're going to win a Stanley Cup is Matthews, Marner, Nylander score. Do yeah. you feel that same way about three guys on the Blues? And they have $15 million on LTIR. So how do you make it work? You got a bunch, bunch of money on LTIR. Yeah. You got nothing throwing at your defensive core. And you rely on four or five guys as forwards that are just going to get you through the regular season and will be the reason you advance in the postseason. That's a really risky way to go about things. It can be a house of cards, as we've seen for Toronto in the postseason in years past. But if you've got guys, to your point, Alex, that are legitimately elite level players that continuously perform, you can make it work. The Blues don't have that. The Blues have three guys that are really good, not elite. Not yet, at least. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, what are the Cardinals valuing in a manager? And how will we go about uh, about evaluating Ollie Marmel in 2024? We're going to talk about that coming up here in just a little bit. Questions and answers is next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. I'm BK 3143999646 is the air comfort service line for questions and answers. You give us your questions. We'll try to give you an answer here on BK and Ferrario. Let's start with this from the 314 guys. If the blues could trade Buchnevich and get a significant return, why wouldn't they also try to trade Jordan Cairo? Seems like they would get enough talent back to continue to stay competitive and they would get a lot of money off of the books. That would be a full blown rebuild. If you're trading both Buchnevich and oh, Kairou, yeah. you are committing to a five-year rebuild. You would be bad because the re- return that you're getting is probably very young. Yeah. And you're getting guys that can help you, you know, three years from now. Um, so at that point, you you should also trade Jordan Bennington, Colton Pareko. Like, you're yeah. going Blow it tear up. it down to the studs. You're going straight uh San Jose Sharks, Arizona Coyotes, that is yeah. what you're committing to. So I, I would not go that route. No, God, no. You you trade one or the other. Like You don't trade both of them because now you don't have a top line and you're wasting Robert Thomas's prime with not having any offensive players with him. The reason you trade one of them is because you, get, you hope that the return can instill a faster action from the Blues. But yeah, there's no way, shape, or form you trade both of them. If you do, just blow it up. Yeah, you don't trade both because you're right. You still can have a top line with two guys, and then you can kind of find a rotating piece that goes with those guys. Like, look look at Edmonton, for example. They had Vander Kane playing with 
Connor McDavid, they're in a stretch. Like Evander Kane's not a top line player, but if you have a great player like a Robert Tom or like a Connor McDavid, if Robert Thomas is as good as we think he is and a number one centerman, he can elevate the game of others around him. And that's why you don't need both a Booch and a Cairo, but you definitely need at least one. All right. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line. I like this question from the 314. Guys, I don't understand what the Cardinals are trying to make of their clubhouse issues. Do Marmol, Goldie, and Arenado completely lack leadership? And if that's the case, what's going on here? I think that there are some, this is my personal perspective, speculation here. I think there are some Cardinals that believe the reason why they lost last year was a lack of leadership and because they were too young and didn't have enough guys that had been there, done that before. I don't believe that's why they lost last year. So when you have some guys, maybe even on the team, maybe their names are Nolan Arenado, that believe that that was why you lost in order to appease them, in order to make them feel good going into this upcoming season, one of the things you might do is bring in more veteran leadership. Bring in guys that have been there, done that before. And you hope that by having that in the locker room, it becomes a chicken or egg thing where maybe Nolan Arenado plays better. And if Nolan Arenado plays better, guess what, guys? The Cardinals are less likely to lose this year. Like, I think a big part of what happened last year is Arenado had an off year, Goldie had a down year, the offense wasn't good enough around them, and the pitching fell apart. And when you have all of those things happening simultaneously, the dam breaks and you're done. And they had they were so far behind so early, there was no getting it back. And but they were leadership their makes you better. Sure. Leadership um, and the good vibes in a locker room makes you better. I think they are vastly overstating how much of a leadership issue they had last year. And if they did have a real leadership issue the way that they're talking about, it speaks incredibly poorly, in my opinion, of Nolan Arnato and Paul Goldschmidt. And I just refuse to believe that those guys are that much of a problem in the locker room, specifically Paul Goldschmidt. I think Goldie is known and revered, in fact, for his leadership. The Cardinals have talked about that. So I, I don't think it's as big of a deal as they're making it out to be. I think Nolan believed it was as big of a deal as he's making it out to be. Yeah. I, think, I think they're trying to make it a bigger deal to make sense of some of the signings that they've accomplished. And I, well, you don't I, think they could spin the Carpenter no. deal any other way? No. Well, I don't think they could spin the Carpenter deal any other way, the Lance Lynn deal any other way. Like I, I think some of the deals, most of their offseason, this was the best that they could do, but they had to spin it as, well, our bigger problem was leadership, not actual talent. Yeah, and, and I, I think... I think everything that BK said is is right on. Of I think they somebody in the clubhouse felt it was an issue, and they felt like they needed it to be addressed. I I agree with with you 100 though. I I don't think their lack their struggles last year was a lack of leadership, and the fact that we didn't hear reports that came out at the end of the season about you know Arnado and Goldie as leaders and Ali as a leader, like you saw in San Francisco, in San Diego, where stories were written about man right. this clubhouse sucks. That. That didn't happen here. I don't think it was that big a deal. I do think that there were some issues in the clubhouse. O'Neal, Jack Flaherty. Like, I think those guys may have caused some issues, but I don't think it was so bad. And I remember Ollie saying at the end of the year, like, hey, man, we got to get guys that want to win. Okay. Like, there were some issue there, but it wasn't a lack of leadership. It was a talent issue for the most part last year. Somebody from the text line from the 618 mentioned, hey, guys, why wasn't Nolan Arenado at winter warm-up? Fair question. I don't know. Shrug emoji. Paul Goldschmidt wasn't either, right? He had a commitment. Um, 
And from what Dan said earlier today, he had a wedding that he was in that he couldn't make it to winter warm up for. Fair. Maybe Nolan Arenado had a totally reasonable reason to not be there. It's something. Something. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get into some NFL quick hitters. But coming up next, what are the Cardinals valuing in their manager? And how do they want us to evaluate that early this season? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. So earlier today, we talked to Jeremy Rutherford of The Athletic. We also are great friends with Katie Wu of The Athletic. She joins us throughout the baseball season. And she had a piece earlier today, Alex, um, on the pressure that is on Ollie Marmel heading into 2024. And it's a good piece. It's well worth your time. But as you get further and further into this thing, I I think there was one line that I really took from it. Alex, she wrote, Perhaps the biggest question regarding Marmol's future is this. What are John Mosellock and the Cardinals looking for, and what do they value in a manager? Winning! Yeah. And Alex, I think that's a really fair question to ask. What do they want in a manager? What do they value? And also, what do you, the listener right now, value from that position? 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Because, Alex, when we answer that question, we can then determine how we evaluate that part of what Ollie is doing. What for you, when you're watching the games this year, what do you value in that role? And how are you going to be evaluating that from Ollie Marvel? I mean, some of it's like you can't really tell off of the game. But the first main thing I'm going to be is, can he get the best out of his players? And I'm not sure he's accomplished that yet. I think he did in year one. I'm not sure he did. I think he I think he got the best out of some of his players, but not all of his players. Who did he not get the best out of? In year one? Year one, they were really good, man. I mean, he got the best out of Albert Pujols. He got the best out of uh, Paul Goldschmidt. He got the best out of Nolan Arenado. Like, oh, yep, has looked good. Yeah, yeah I, I think year one, it, it it's pretty definitive he got the best out of this. I, I, I would. Especially given what we saw from them last year. I, I, I don't think he did out of the most important pieces of it like I think he got some out of all of it but even if he did if you believe he did in the first year that's not consistent enough and if I need a manager that's going to be here that's going to get me into a winning window you got to be consistent in terms of getting the best out of the roster that you have in place and then too I think the 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 in-game management side of it with Ali Marmol is going to be very important in terms of how he manages the bullpen how he uses certain guys on this team not using Taylor Motter as many times as he does, like some of the decisions that he makes throughout a 162 game season, I think are very critical. And I, I, I'm just not sure he's provided that to where I felt like, yep, this is the guy. De- decision making in game is the one that I'm going to be keeping an eye on the most. Cause like the leadership stuff, like, look, yes, that's important from a manager. Can I grade that from the outside? Not really. It is very tough to look at that and grade it from the outside. I give him a ton of props from last year. They finished 20 games below 500, and as I just mentioned in questions and answers, there wasn't a single piece written that said that, hey, the Cardinals locker room sucked, and people were talking behind the scenes about Oliver Marmol. That says a lot about Ali Marmol and the way that he was able to at least keep that locker keep that locker room or that clubhouse engaged or at least down the right path of, hey, here's what it's going to take for us to win. This is just a 
bump in the road for us, and hopefully we get back to that next year. But I think in-game decision-making is going to be key for me. You know, bullpen matchups that you're looking at. I thought there were a lot of question marks with that last year for uh, Ollie Marmol. I, I think the Taylor Motter role, I think he's got that this year with Matt Carpenter again, where Matt Carpenter, in theory, I can understand where you look at and say he's going to be a leadership guy. He's just going to sit there, and he's going to keep this bench nice and warm and have an open seat that when anybody needs to talk to him, they can come sit next to him. Taylor Motter was supposed to just be the 26th man. It was like good vibes, great hair, and he ended up playing a lot more than I was expecting. And that was a marmol decision. So I'll be keeping an eye on that. And the other thing for me is, and, and this is going to be tough to, tough to kind of grade him on, and I think this is probably something that the fan base is going to want to grade him on, is is he going to be patient and stick with a regular starting nine? Because the Cardinals have said, hey, we, we cleared up the log jam. We cleared up the outfield log jam. Now you can question if they did or not. We're going to run out a regular nine starting lineup. Okay, if that's the case, how how quick are you going to be to change that, though? The issue he had last year, and I don't blame him for it last year, was outfield just kept going in and out, plug and play, plug and play, looking for somebody to grab that role. This year, is he going to be a little bit more patient? I think that is something to keep an eye on, and same with his starters as well, because this rotation is not built on modern baseball. This rotation is built on eating innings. So uh, let's talk about Bonner for a second, because I think that's a that's a big moment last year that we all point to, including myself. Where it's like, I'm going to be kicking and screaming. You you can't play this guy as often as they did. And I think that's true. But now that we know what we do, and you look back on the role that he had for the Cardinals. He was the best friend of Arenado? No. It's a bad decision by them. And especially July when he was playing. We now know Brendan Donovan had no arm. <laughs> and we now know that Nolan Gorman was playing through some serious back stuff. At that point in the season. Boy, this Cardinal seems in good shape. Fair. That's why he was playing as much as he was in July and then early August. Because they didn't have alternatives. Like, your alternative was Jose Fermin. And listen, man, if it's Taylor Motter or Jose Fermin, it doesn't much matter. They weren't going to be doing a whole lot of winning with those guys in the lineup. They, they, they brought very little to the table in terms of what they were going to do for you offensively. Now, if you want to look a little earlier in the season, you want to talk about April. And in April, he started on April 4th. He started on April 8th. This is like the first week of the season. Taylor Motter is getting starts for you in the lineup. Against lefties. That is where I will be very curious to see how the Cardinals approach this early in the season. Because they're trying to sell it. That they have filtered through their options. I don't believe them. <laughs> I think they're wrong. Sure they have. I think the Cardinals have actually added potentially more options than what they had early on last year because early last year, Lars Newbar was hurt coming into the season. So, yes, you have Jordan Walker, who's definitively going to be your starting uh, right fielder. They had that last year early on in the season. Now, there were questions about whether or not it was going to work out long-term, but he started, I believe it was, each of the first 10 games. He had that hitting streak, remember, to start out last season? And then they sent him down to AAA because they need to filter through their options. Last year, early on in the season, you had Tyler O'Neill starting basically every day. Last year, you had early on in the season, Dylan Carlson getting a bunch of opportunities. Like, you had guys that you were betting on. It just didn't work because they didn't hit. So what happens this year if Tommy Edmond isn't hitting in center field or Mason Wynn isn't hitting at shortstop or there are some back issues that arise for Nolan Gorman? Where is Brendan Donovan getting all of these at-bats from? When is Matt Carpenter going to get his opportunities? Are they going to try to force Dylan Carlson into the lineup against left-handed pitching? Like, 
there are a lot of opportunities here to go with a different kind of a lineup. So that's how I'm going to be evaluating Ollie Marmel. You say this is what you want. Go do it. If you want more of a stagnant lineup where guys are playing in the same spots basically every day. Cool. That's fine. I don't think it was as big of an issue last year as they make it out to be. But if you do and you value that, then let's see it. Let's see you really commit to the same guys nine or same nine guys for the most part every day for the first three weeks of the season. Let's see that. But I'm skeptical, man. I'm really skeptical that they're actually going to go out there and do that. Yeah, and for Ali Marmol, I, I view him as more of a new school manager because he's willing to play the platoons, as you saw in year one in 2022. But the vibes they've given off this offseason is we got to get back to old school baseball. And what do I mean by that? A same, the same starting nine where you know where everybody's at and a rotation that is going to eat innings and not worry about just the third time through the order. And I think, I think the rotation is going to be fascinating to keep an eye on as well because all these guys were brought into – Eight innings. Well, what happens if Lance Lynn is allowed like three runs and looks just okay and we're getting ready to go through the third time through the order? Are you going to stick with him? How are you going to manage the bullpen? Because they have a piece in Ryan Helsley that they have to be careful with and how they manage him in season. So, I, I And I think, speaking of the lineup, how do you keep Goldie and Arnado fresh? That'll be something to keep an eye on as well. And utilizing Donovan in that utility role, I, I think there's a lot to see with Ali Marmol and how he handles a lot of these pieces because 2022 is great. 2023 raised a lot of questions, and I think it's fair, and I don't know if it's as fair as saying like Skip Schumacher was the guy pulling the strings, but I think it's fair to have some questions about what he was doing, at least on paper, and all the moves that he was trying to make. It's going to be tough for him, too, because if you're Ollie, you want to, and maybe it won't be, maybe he's just going to play this like he typically would, but you know, you are going to have a season where it's going to feel like you're walking on eggshells because the one moment you make a slip up, it's going to be a glaring slip up and everybody's going to be talking about it and everybody's going to be blaming Ollie mm-hmm. for it. And it's probably not even going to be his fault. It's going to be somebody else's fault, but it's going to come down to the manager because everybody already has him on the chopping block. Yeah, that's that's the thing that I think is most important. Uh, you said it at the beginning of the segment, Alex. He's going to be judged based on his winning. Like, if, if he's making a bunch of wrong decisions, this was the old Mike Matheny thing, right? Early on in Mike Matheny's tenure, he was an objectively bad manager in terms of the in-game decisions. He's bad with his bullpen management. Some of his lineup decisions didn't make any It didn't matter. They were good. They were so incredibly talented that they were able to overcome the decision-making of their manager. And you can make an argument, he was a good leader. People liked him, so it worked early on in his tenure here in St. Louis. And then as the roster started to become a little worse, you started to magnify the decisions that were being made by the manager. It was like, wait a second, what's going on here? And then the defense started to fall back, and then the base running started to fall back. It's like, whoa, we got a real problem here, boys. And so they decided to make a change there. Ultimately, it came down to... Early on, he was winning. Later on, he was losing. Last year, Ollie did a lot of losing as the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. And for this fan base, that is unacceptable. And this year, it's not going to be about individual games, man. It's not going to be about individual decisions. It's not going to be about how long does he leave in the, the starter. It's going to be, did the starter succeed when he left him in? Did Matt Carpenter go out there and when he got the opportunity as a pinch hitter, did he succeed in that role? Did Mason Wynn and Tommy Edmond make good on the promise of what they are defensively? Do you get an improvement this year from Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt? Does the leadership inside of the clubhouse stick? Does it actually work the way they're hoping? Do they get a couple of good bounces? A lot of this is just good fortune. Do they stay healthy? If those things all work out for the Cardinals this year, we're going to look at Ollie and say, ah, that guy's a better manager than he was last year. Is he actually? Probably not. He's probably pretty similar. But... The truth is, he's going to be judged on the winning. 
For me, though, early on, one of the things that I'm going to be looking for, does the lineup stay mostly stagnant? Because that is something they've promised us this offseason. We'll hold them to that. And then two, how much is he going to trust his veterans? Because if there is one thing where there have been times where I've not seen eye to eye with Ollie, it's because he is trusting, in my opinion, too much some of the veterans. Now, it worked out for him in 2022. He trusted Albert Pujols more than I would have early on in the season. And then he got the best hitter in baseball the second half of the season because he trusted him. He also trusted Adam Wainwright late in 2022. That one did not pay off for him. And in the playoffs, they were potentially going to go to Adam Wainwright in game three of that wild card series. And I think it would have been a disaster if they had done that. And then last year, they trusted Waino. I believe more than they should have. It didn't matter. The team stunk. And so whatever, he got his numbers. And we all look back on it. And you're going to remember the one game where he got to 200 instead of all of the other stuff where he had the worst ERA in the history of baseball for a player that started as many games as he did. We'll forget about that. We'll wash it away because it was just one thing in a line of terrible moments in the regular season. But his reliance on veterans, specifically Matt Carpenter, who is now a member of his bench, that will be something that I'm looking at early on in the season for Ollie Marmol. I can't wait to see him on opening day. Yeah, it's very that's a very kind of Mike Schilt thing. Yep. And that was a big thing with Mike Schilt was hey man, he's got his veterans, whether you so like it or Mike not. Matheny thing too. Yeah, Matheny as well. Um and now I don't think he's gone to the extent of what Mike Schilt did. Because Mike Schilt was like, hey, Carp's hitting 175. He's in the lineup every day. Yeah, I don't think Ollie's been that bad. I don't think no, he'll I get don't. to that no, point. Not at all. But he is still a little, little – I agree with you, BK. I, I think he has been at times still a little over-reliant on the veterans. And I'll throw Yachty into this as well. Sure. Because remember when Yachty was not hitting in 2022 at the end there, I was like, man, you, you got to pinch hit for him late in games. Especially and he, in late-game situations. And he would go, no, I trust him. And, and he stuck with that. And he, it didn't really ever work, but he stuck with it. Um, so I'll, I'll be curious to watch that as well now that he has more veteran experience on here in Matt Carpenter. That's T-Bone. He's Alex on BK. NFL Quick Hitters coming up next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. I'm, I'm mad for the old guys. Why don't you I'm hire mad on them. behalf of all of the olds. The geriatric community the is going to have BK as their endorser. Oh, T-Bone needs to be their endorser. Are you I'm kidding me? I'm a proud AARP. Alex, yeah. what did you just say? Or T-Bone, what did you just say? <laughs> I just said, said <laughs> I'm a proud AARP. Per, per pro football talk, former Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll is, quote, making a push for the Chargers vacancy at head coach. Good. They should hire him. No. Well, they got Jim Harbaugh, yeah, man. Harbaugh. At least they're making a good Why hire. Why don't you hire him as like a hype man? Hell, the Falcons should see this report and go, Pete, Pete, Pete. we want you here. <laughs> Pete. Yeah, no, I would still hire Harbaugh Mike over Frable Pete Carroll. also in the mix, according to uh, what? Can Mike someone tell me what's going on with Mike Frable? He, he's sitting out. I think Mike's sitting it out. So it actually makes a little sense for Mike Frable. If you're Frable and you don't get the Chargers job, you probably don't want these other jobs, if we're being honest, that are available right now. I think they're, the Falcons they're not. job is good. He's got a yeah. good quarterback. Yeah, you could you could take that one, but it seems like they're kind of honed in on either going the Belichick route. Like if they're going to go a proven coach, proven commodity, they're going Belichick. And if they're going to go a different route, it's like Ben Johnson. Yeah, probably. I get that. That makes sense. I can understand that. And if you're the if you're the Chargers and you're going with Jim Harbaugh, most likely, okay, it's hard for me to argue otherwise. He, I think he's a good coach. If you're Vrabel and you're sitting this thing out and you're saying, all right, what are the jobs that could open up realistically next year? There's some good ones. The Bills, 
Maybe that becomes an opening. Cowboys, maybe that opens up. Eagles, see what happens with the Chiefs. I don't know how much longer Andy wants to do this. I think he's going to be around for a little while, but I mean, even if it's an off chance, if it's a 30% chance of the Chiefs job opening up, that would be probably the most sought after job in the history of job openings. Would you rather have the Eagles job? Because I don't know if I would after this season. Than who? Than like the Falcons. Yeah. I think the Eagles might be in shambles after this season. If you're going to lose A.J. Brown, if their defense takes a step backwards. Who's my quarterback with the Falcons? Well, I might, the hope is you either acquire one via trade or free agency with this upcoming draft. But it's exactly hope. an unknown. Yeah. yeah, but look at all the weapons I have around it. Hey, look at my weapons in Philly. I don't know if A.J. Brown's going to be there. I think you will be. I, I, think I think he's that, got a little attitude problem these days. Probably, but if you're one of these coaches, you probably believe, "Hey, I <laughs> could go, I could get in there, and I could fix that." Right? That you have to have a little arrogance about you if you're going to be a top line head coach. The reason I bring all of that up to say this: if you're Mike Vrabel, it makes sense to sit this year out. Now, if you're Pete Carroll or Belichick, you got a time, you got a clock that is ticking. Yeah, you only have kind of so time. Death is around left. the corner. Whoa, wow. I don't know, Sanish saying like what? in terms of being vibrant and youthful and having the energy, like we heard Nick Saban talk about. It's a hard job, man. It requires a lot of time, and it's harder to put in that time when you get to a certain age. So, if I'm one of these guys, man, I need to take a job now. And I'm very surprised that none of these teams saw the availability of future Hall of Famers and said to themselves, yeah, Mike McCarthy, Nick Sirianni, or Bill Belichick or Pete Carroll or Mike Vrabel. And they said, ah, we'll keep what we've got. I'm I am genuinely shocked that this is the path that some of these NFL teams chose. I, I'm, I am too, to be honest with you. The Dallas one is I'm still flabbergasted by Nick Sirianni a little bit. But, like, I can understand them being like, no, he just needs better coordinators than the ones that, you know, we didn't try and keep in-house with them. But um, the, the the Cowboys one, I just don't understand with all these guys available to him. And then, like, nah, Mike McCarthy's good. Well, on the Cowboys and Eagles front, you guys answer me this question because I'm I drawing a blank on this. When was the last time you saw a team have just an absolute catastrophic collapse and recover the next year? The Chargers this year. That what? went well, right? No. It worked out. They were up by 27 in a playoff but, game. They lose to the Jaguars, and then they bring back Brandon Staley. and they're proven. Like, the Blues in 2019. <laughs> but they got fixed in season. I'm saying, like, you play well I bring well that up because apart. your point is fair. Like, it doesn't often happen where you have a embarrassing yeah. end to your season, and then it just gets fixed yeah. the next it's year. It's all sunshine and lollipops. Yeah. Yeah. And AJ Brown's not showing up to a team's playoff game because he's, you know, good spirits with the team. Like, I... I can't name a team that's had a moment where they've had such a collapse. Eagles for like a 10-game stretch. And the, really, We've the never Cowboys, seen a collapse like what the Eagles did yeah, this year, too. It, so that's where it's really difficult to come up with a comparison. It's it's literally and, never and happened more, in the history of the sport where a team started 10-1 and one and finished with as poor of a record as the Eagles did this year. And, and then, like, even the Cowboys won. Like, again, you mentioned the Chargers. The Chargers fired their coach later. So, like, just going off a track record alone based on what I just said there. That should be enough to go, you know what, 
there are great options. I love Pete Carroll. I would have hired Pete Carroll. I love Bill Belichick. I would have hired Bill Belichick. Hell, I would have gone the Mike Vrabel route if I'm the Cowboys or the Philadelphia sure. Eagles. I'm totally with you guys. I'm shocked that it looks like these Hall of Fame type coaches are just going to be sitting yeah. on the sidelines. And this I year. feel like all of the teams' success this season with offensive coordinators, like or defensive coordinators, like when you look at the teams that brought them in and they the the, sex, the success that they had. That's the other part that I'm also really surprised by. The teams are like, oh well, let's go out there and just get a coordinator, and not worry about these former head coaches that have had success. All right, let's continue with some NFL quick hit. Speaking of coaches that have actually been hired, the Tennessee Titans are working on a deal right now to hire Brian Callahan, the former Bengals offensive coordinator, to be their next head coach. Alex, what do you think of this hire for the Tennessee Titans? I don't like it, but I also don't know who the hell the Tennessee Titans are, so I guess it makes sense. Like, if you're going to go somewhere, you're probably going to go an offensive-minded guy and hope that you can reestablish an offensive mindset. The problem is you don't have a quarterback and then you're not going to have your running back and your weapons offensively aren't any good. So I, I don't know. I, I think that's the team that probably needed to go more of the Dan Campbell route to instill a culture and then build from there. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about the hire either. And more so on the Brian Callahan side, like I feel bad for him. He's being hired to be fired. Like I, I can't see him having success in Tennessee. Who's the quarterback next year? What are they doing at that position? Yeah. I guess Will Levis, is that who they're going to run it back with? Maybe they trade up and try and get a quarterback. Like, I, I don't get a sense of what the direction is for the Tennessee Titans, and that's why I kind of agree with Alex. I thought they would go more with, like, a stopgap coach, like someone that's been there, done that before, like a Raheem Morris potentially, go with a culture guy, not like a young offensive mind. When I look at that squad and I go, well, what are they doing? I, I don't know. If anything, their identity has been defense these last couple of years. It has been. But that defense is getting a little older. They have lost a lot of pieces from it. I don't mind a hire. I don't know who you were going to be able to draw to Tennessee, given the situation that you guys just described. That was going to be a better hire than Callahan. Now, he's probably going to bring his dad, who is one of the best offensive line coaches in the NFL, and that's a really significant hire in the league. If you don't have a good offensive line coach, you're probably doomed. And he's going to bring arguably the best one in the last 20 years with him to Tennessee, most likely. Um, so that that's a really big deal for him. It's, he's currently the, his dad is currently the Browns offensive line coach. So if you guys are curious who he is, what he's done really good work with them there. So I think they've done a pretty good job with that Bengals offense. They found new answers over the last couple of seasons. I thought this year they did a really good job after Joe Burrow went down with injury. I thought that team was done. They got some pretty good value out of what's his face. Their backup quarterback, Jake Browning. Browning. So I, I think it's going to be fine. I don't mind the hire. I'll be curious to see what he does there. And they have needed an offensive voice to be in that system for the last few years. That's been probably the biggest issue for Vrabel is he just never really found the offensive coordinator uh, that you were hoping to bet on. So the big news in the NFL yesterday, last night, Titans nearing a deal with Brian Callahan. Final question here for NFL quick hitters, guys. As we prepare for this upcoming weekend in the conference championship week, is there one team that you find to be most interesting going into these games. And you can take that in any direction that you would like to, Alex. The most interesting team for any reason heading into conference championship weekend, Chiefs, Ravens, Lions, 49ers, to you is who? Mine's the Lions. I I'm very interested to see what they accomplish. Like, I, my opinion's been changed on Jared Goff. I love Dan Campbell. I think that defense can... Uh, eliminate the run game. My opinion has, has changed. I think will continue to change if they continue to find ways to be competitive or pull off a victory. Man, I, I think I might say San Francisco 
just because I'm so fascinated with their quarterback, with Brock Purdy. I, I love this roster. I think Kyle Shanahan's a great head coach. He still doesn't have the Super Bowl, though. And I think some of that is a little bit on him. Like, I look, going back to his time with Atlanta, the 28-3, just epic collapse. He's the OC there, and I'm going to put some of that on him. Um, they got to the Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo. He keeps getting there with, what would you call it, like top 20 quarterbacks maybe, like fringe top 20 yep. quarterbacks, and he just can't get over the hump. I, I'm fascinated by them because I don't think Brock Purdy's the guy, and the fact that Debo looks like he's like a 50-50 shot to be playing this weekend, we saw what happened when that piece went out last weekend. I think there's a legitimate chance they could lose to the Lions this week. I think if Debo doesn't play, I think they're losing. I, I think they're winning. I, I think they're just a better team than the Lions. Um, but we'll have our conversations about that. I, I think it's the Ravens. I think the Ravens are the best team left. I, I, they should be, at least. They've, they've got the quarterback that the 49ers lack. They've got a coach that everybody trusts. He's aggressive when he needs to be. And they've got a defense that is probably the best in the league this year based on what they have done from start to finish so far. And yet, I don't know if I trust them. I just don't know if I trust them. And that's earned based on what they've done in the playoffs with Lamar Jackson at the helm. I want to see him do it. And this is the team that you want to see them do it against. You're at home. You're going up against Patrick Mahomes. You're going up against an offense that while they have played well the last couple of weeks, they have some deficiencies. And the the Ravens defense should match up very well, much better than either the Bills or the Dolphins did against the Chiefs offense. And so if ever there was a time for Lamar and the Ravens to break through, it is right now. So I, I find them to be the most compelling because this should be the year that they are able to break through because the Chiefs are more vulnerable than they have been in previous years. But I said the same thing about the Bills. The Bills weren't able to get it done, and now it's on the Ravens to be able to do that. So I find the Ravens to be the most interesting team going into this weekend. If they don't get it done this year, I think you're once again going to have to make significant changes to that team. And I I don't know where that comes from this time around. I don't know what is left to be able to change. I can get behind that because I can tell you the one team I'm not rooting for this weekend is Kansas City because I'm tired. Tired! Seeing him in the championship game. Coming up in 10 minutes, we'll dive into the junk drawer. But next, so 50% of you want to trade Jordan Bennington, huh? Alex going to yell at you next. You're on 101 <laughs> ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. BK, you got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Coming up here in just a little bit, we'll dive into the junk drawer, but Alex, nearly 50% of Blues fans responded to Jeremy Rutherford's survey saying, yeah, go ahead and trade Jordan Bennington. And that made you very mad earlier today. I didn't know uh, all these people that were voting on this lost some intelligence when they took the survey. I wanted to allow you, the listeners, I would assume many of you probably took this survey over in The Athletic because many of you have subscribed to The Athletic, where Jeremy Rutherford does fantastic work. Alex, when you saw this earlier today, what was your reaction? And, and let's try to stay level-headed. Let's try to avoid the name-calling. You know the topic you just tossed to me, right? You when want me to you stay saw level-headed? That nearly 50% of the Blues fans responded by saying, yeah, if it jumpstarts our retool... I would be in favor of trading Jordan Bennington. Your reaction was? Why? How? 
it doesn't jumpstart your retool. And that's that's my that was my bigger question when I saw the response. Like, sure, you can sit here and act like, oh, well, this will jumpstart our retool. But guess what? The glaring hole is for your team when you trade a goaltender who is the only reason you're not fighting for a top pick right now in the NHL draft. That's our problem. I guess it is. I mean, technically, yes, it is. Like, they, they probably should do that. But you trade away a goaltender who is winning you games. He's one of the better goalies this season. And I saw the 636 tech saying, like, he's incredible streaky just like he's been this year. No. He's had incredible streaky seasons, but I'd argue a lot of that was the people in front of him. But here's my whole thought process with Jordan Bennington. If you trade a guy who is going to win you hockey games to expedite your retool, let's say you need to fix your defensive problems. Let's say you want to go find some offense. That's great. But now your problem is going to be, well, who's going to stop the puck for us when we have breakdowns? Because I know people love the idea of Joel Hofer, and I think Joel Hofer is going to be a really good goaltender. But guys, Joel Hofer has done nothing in the National Hockey League. This is his first full season. He's had ups. He's had downs. If you want to trade Jordan Bennington because he's a, quote, incredibly streaky goaltender, guys, what has Joel Hofer been this season? Every time he's been in the net, you're either getting a shutout, a really good performance, or you're going to give up five goals and thinking our goaltender lost us that game. Jordan Bennington has been there, done that. The only reason we talk playoffs here in St. Louis is because you've got a goaltender that wins you hockey games. And let's be frank with this. You trade Jordan Bennington, what are you really getting in return? Because the only scenario I'm trading Jordan Bennington is if Edmonton offers up Leon Dreisaitl or Toronto offers up Mitch Marner. Because that expedites the retool. But that's not coming your way at this time. Maybe in the offseason, but you're not... You're not fixing anything by trading Jordan Bennington, just like you're not fixing anything from trading Colton Pareko. You trade him, and then you're searching for that next piece. And Blues fans know how long they waited to get a goaltender who could win them a playoff series, and you've got one. So I I agree. I would not trade Jordan Bennington, but I'm going to play kind of the devil's advocate of what I think some fans were thinking when it was towards the yes side of this and closer to 50% than what I was expecting. I wonder if they look at it, because again, there was a pretty resounding vote of, hey, re-sign Buchnevich. And I said in our first segment, I feel like he could be the guy that accelerates the retool. I think a lot of fans would look at that and go, okay, if I can get a good haul for Bennington, I can accelerate the retool because I'm getting pieces there, and then you sign stopgap goalies to go get that. Because I'm not sure they're necessarily saying Joel Holford's the guy. I think they could be saying I could go out there and just play with fire and see what I get on the market. I Again, I would not approach it that way. But I do view goalies a little bit as the way I view relievers in baseball, to where their seasons go up and down, and really you don't know what you're getting except for one goalie in the National Hockey League, and that's Vasilevsky. Otherwise, I mean, last year we were talking about Bennington as being part of the problem for the St. Louis Blues. This year we're talking about him being part of the solution. That's kind of where I think some of the vote came from was, all right, I'd be willing to listen to a deal, and I'll go sign somebody else that can help this, because I'm not necessarily sure. I think he is a pillar in a part of this retool that you just stick with in Jordan Bennington. But I don't think I'm at a hundred percent like he's untouchable. I need help here from the text line. Three one four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line. And I need help from you, Alex. What's the comparison for this? Of trading Bennington? That's what I was just looking up. Like what, so so like, Robert, Robert, Who are the teams that have traded massive capital for a goalie? So the one that I brought up or the one that I looked up, Roberto Luongo, when he was traded from Florida to Vancouver. This was back in 2006. I mean, Luongo was 
like 27, 28 years old, and he was a really good player for the Florida Panthers, and they traded him to Vancouver for Todd Bertuzzi, Brian Allen, and then another uh, uh, another goaltender. And like Todd Bertuzzi was coming off of a really good season. Brian Allen was a very good young defenseman. So like that could be your comp, but that was back in 2006. That was almost 20 years yeah. ago. Teams don't like, trade these. Like think Luongo of was then traded again, by the mm-hmm. way, in 2014, and they got Jacob Markstrom in that deal. Um, but like... This just doesn't happen. And so as much as we want to throw out the idea of Jordan Bennington being like the key critical cog in the Blues, finding a way out of this retool because of the amount of value that he would have, I'm going to say something that might be a little unpopular. I don't think he has as much value on the trade market as people would like to believe. And it's not because I'm down on Bennington, although I probably am relative to you, Alex. I, I think Bennington is really good. I think his real value, though, is in the playoffs. And as a regular season goalie, he's merely fine. Um, But that being said, even if I conceded that argument and I said he's excellent, he's one of the best goalies in the NHL, top 10 every year. Okay, cool. Where is the example of that player being traded for as much as it would take for the Blues to then accelerate their retool? Because I can give you a lot of examples of forwards that were traded for big time capital and it accelerated the retool in a massive way i can show you plenty of examples of the same thing with the defenseman i can't really find that example for a goalie and so that's where i come down on this of i just kind of reject the premise of you being able to accelerate your retool by trading jordan bennington i think there's a scenario in which i would be willing to trade jordan bennington certainly more so than alex but i don't think it's realistic I don't think there's another team that's going to give you that kind of capital for a goalie because I can't find the recent history of that happening for anybody. There are, I'm looking through this right now, at least in the Eastern Conference, there are four playoff teams that would love to have Jordan Bennington right now. And just to go to the West, I think Colorado would love to have a better goaltender than what they've got. Edmonton absolutely would. The LA Kings, the Arizona Coyotes, the Calgary Flames, the Seattle Kraken. Sure, but what are they giving you for? Well, well I'm not I'm not going down the sense of what you're getting in return. What I'm saying here is there are teams that people view as legit Stanley Cup contenders that don't have goaltending. This is the part, like, you can sit here and act like it's going to expedite your retool, but you know what happens when you have a leaky goaltender and you've got a young group in front of him, everybody loses their confidence when a mistake happens on the ice because the goaltender's not there to make the save for you. Jordan Middington this season has provided a little bit more confidence for a group because he's able to make some saves. Like It just it doesn't expedite the retool in people's minds unless you're getting a, a top-line player, whether it's forward or defense, in return for that player. It doesn't expedite the retool. It just puts a bandage over one problem and then creates a massive hole somewhere else. The boat is still sinking. It's just a matter of which side. So uh, we had a few people text in, BK, if this never happens, how do you know the return would be not be good? Uh, from the 314, BK, you can't find those scenarios just because not many top goalies are traded, right? I, I don't know if that's it. I think it's when they are traded, the return is not what you expect it to be. Like Goalies are traded all the time. Goalies move around as much as really any position in the not, NHL. Not number one goaltenders who are 30 years old. I think they do. I think probably more than we give it credit for. And, and the, we are so close to it. Like, What is the difference between Matt Murray and Jordan Bennington? Just asking, like, what what is the difference? If you look at this point in Matt Murray's career, why was he viewed as significantly different than Jordan Bennington? 
Because they had similar starts. I mean, Matt Murray fell off significantly. Agreed, but we're not that at that point in Jordan Bennington's career just yet. And I'm not telling you he's going to be. I don't think he will. But the reason why I bring that up is because we don't view some of the deals that were made for starting goalies to be as significant as we did at the time. Because those goalies, a lot of the time, fell off. Because T-Bone's right. Many goalies are like relievers, where you get three good years out of them and then time to recycle. And so the deals are made. We see trades done with goalies that we expect to be big-time contributors for their new team. And then they just don't become the player that we all thought that they would be with that team a lot of the time. So that's I, I think that's why I, I'm saying this is because I, I don't believe that you're going to have this massive windfall of talent that's coming your way via trading Jordan Bennington. That's not me saying anything negatively about Benner. It's me talking about the goalie market. Teams just don't value it the way that we want them to. You'll find out this trade deadline because, again, there are like four teams that are in desperate need of goaltenders. You'll find out what that goaltender market looks like, what Edmonton pays to get a goaltender, what the New Jersey Devils pay to get a goaltender, what Colorado pays to get a goaltender. You're going to find out what that market is. Like a team well, we is see pro- this every year. Uh, but but see, this is the thing. Don't have goalies, and then they don't make the move, and they're like, you know what? We'll figure it out. <laughs> because because the, because because how many playoffs. times have we seen Edmonton go into the postseason with goalie questions? How, how many, many times have we seen? And how many playoff series have you seen those teams win? Correct. To be fair, and they keep losing because they, they these things don't happen <laughs> because the ask is so high. Correct, and because they are unwilling to give up the ask, and this is where I keep coming back to for Benner. I think the question is moot because it doesn't matter. They ain't going to get it. We can talk till we're blue in the face about what the value is of Jordan Bennington on the trade market, what Army should and will value Jordan Bennington as. Other teams won't because they just don't see goalies as being as valuable valuable as we do. And if you're going to give up those kinds of assets, man, I'd just rather get Pavel Buchnevich if I'm another team. I'll just re-sign Pavel Buchnevich, and I'll take my chances with what I've got and get, and we'll see if we can make it work. Because if you trade for Benner and you're giving up the haul that we're talking about, Alex— and he is merely fine, like we have seen from him here in St. Louis, basically since the Cup or since the 2020 season. Man, th- those fans would riot <laughs> unless he goes and like is Superman in the postseason, which might happen or might not. It is just far too risky to give up that kind of capital for. And so that's why teams don't do it. Same reason why most teams will not trade massive capital for a reliever or a closer at the trade deadline. So it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to find the match for. Yeah, and that's where I'm at. And I think when you look at when you look at the scenario that you just laid out of yes, Edmonton is a team that like we look at, we can circle them as look. They didn't get a goalie; it failed. Vegas won a cup with Aiden Hill last year. Aiden Hill was like a nobody, and then he got a four million dollar deal. Like that. That's, look at what Colorado did. Like look at Jordan. That Bennington. guy didn't even have half an eye. I remember, <laughs> and, and he still won a cup. And, and that's why I just think the goalies. Though, yes, we view Bennington as a major asset here. And again, I wouldn't trade him. I just brought up the counterpoint of it. I, I don't think they're viewed well across the NHL. They're viewed as, yeah, you got to have one, but can you just find a guy that gets hot at the right time and then can carry you to the promised land? Yeah, I just think you look at the teams that have won a Stanley Cup in the last, you know, seven years or so. It, we've just seen so many examples of this where a lot of the time they don't even win it with the guy that came into the season as their number one starter. <laughs> and even when they do, like it's a guy like Aiden Hill or it's Darcy Kemper, like it. It's a lot of guys that are just, yeah, they're fine. And you kind of move forward. And so I think a lot of teams view it as we can we can find this guy. And we'll just make up for it with our five-on-five play. We'll make up for it with our defensive structure. And we'll hope to give up fewer than three goals per game in the postseason. And so they're not going to give up first-round pick plus prospect plus NHL-ready player, which is what I think it would take 
for the Blues to even listen on any kind of a conversation with Benner for Jordan Bennington. This is probably the better, the best comp that I could come up with most recently. Uh, Ryan Miller, when the Blues traded for him, traded away Yaroslav Halak, who was having a season where he had a 917 save percentage and a 223 goals against average. They traded away Chris Stewart, who had come off of a season where he had 18 goals in 48 games. They traded a first-round draft pick, a third-round draft pick, and a player who was drafted in the second round. And I view that. And they trade. got Steve Ott with Ryan Miller. Oh, that was a win. Um, I, I view I view that trade as like one of the worst that Doug Armstrong pulled off because they, I mean but Miller it was the right move to make it. The it was. They didn't it was. give anything I'm, up I'm, that you're yeah, upset I'm, about. I'm not saying he also, didn't make Hulak the right was decision. Was on an expiring deal, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, so was so Miller. You, you weren't yeah. trading him for a long term. Yeah. Yeah. Situation but, there. but that deal ended up costing that team in the playoffs because what happened? Ryan Miller did not end up playing. And, that, the playoffs. and that, honestly, that's part. That's other part of the conversation. Like typically, when goalies get traded midseason. That never works for a team. It's always they trade them in the offseason, and that's where yeah, that's where it comes in. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get to better to forget it. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. But next, the Cardinals avoided the dreaded arbitration arbitration hearing with Tommy Edmond. They've given him a two-year contract. What does that mean? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Jordan Bennington talk. Sorry. So we're going to have to skip the junk drawer today. It's normally brought to you by Fit and Bar and Grill. Best trash wings in Missouri. Dine-in carry-out seven days a week. We'll get to that tomorrow. Ashamed. You should be ashamed of yourself, actually. The texter was right. (laughs) The texter was absolutely right. All right, so the Cardinals announced yesterday they signed Tommy Edmond to a two-year contract. It's $16.5 million, Alex. Thank God they did this because they avoid arbitration, the dreaded arbitration hearing. Surprised they found the money. We heard all about it with Tyler O'Neill a couple of years ago and then Ryan Helsley last year. They were $450,000 apart with Tommy Edmond. And so we said at the time, okay, there's one of two things that's happening here. Either one, they're being super cheap, which would kind of fit in with some of their other offseason moves, or two... They're trying to work a longer-term contract out. We've seen this at times in the past, whether that's a multi-year extension or just an opportunity to buy out his two years remaining of arbitration. That's also another route that this could go. They went with option two. Thank goodness. So we don't have to talk about this anymore. Tommy Edmond will be with the Cardinals for this year. He will be with the Cardinals for next year. And then we'll see what it looks like after that. My guess is this is just going to replace his arbitration number this year of roughly $6.5 million. And I'm like about $10 million in 2025. That all makes a lot of sense, Alex, for the Cardinals, for Tommy Edmond. What is Tommy Edmond's value, though, in your opinion, to the 2024 Cardinals? How important is he? When we do our, we're going to sit down here pretty soon, I would imagine, and do our 20 most important Cardinals for the 2024 season. Those are always spot on. Yeah, they end up working out really well. Is Tommy Edmond going to be high on your list of the most important Cardinals for the upcoming year? I think he's going to be high on my list. I don't think he's going to be top five, but I think he could be close to top 10 because I think his importance is going to be the defense. I don't think it has anything to do with his bat and everything to do with he's going to have to be gold glove-esque in center field for you because you're reliant on him to take care of that option. And I also think you're going to have to see him be a utility guy. I think you're going to probably have to see him used at shortstop at times this season because... I think Mason Wynn is an unknown. And if an injury pops up, you might be using him in certain other areas. Like, 
I, I think the importance of Tommy Edman is solely reliant on his defense. And you're going to have to have him at best in terms of like, he's going to have to be near perfect for you in those positions because your outfield is going to be desperate for that type of defense. Yeah. I, I think he's extremely critical to the outfield defense. Cause I don't think they have a sent another center fielder on the roster. And that's why like, I think we've talked about this in the past. Mason Wynn is such a focal point for this team, not because of his, not so much because of the defense, but like if he is just so bad offensively that they have to send him down, it changes everything because now you do have to pull Tommy Edmond in to short, to play shortstop. Which, look, he he can play shortstop, but he's good at short. I think he might be better defensively in center. But the other concern for me is you just don't have a center fielder. We saw it last year with Dylan Carlson in center. You saw it with Lars Newbar in center field. He is their best defensive center fielder, and though I have questions about his arm strength, even even as he can't throw still, I, I think he is by far the best center fielder in terms of route running to where if he's out of the lineup or has to push into shortstop, I think you're seeing, maybe not to the same extent as last year, but you're seeing a lot of the same issues you had last year, which was balls in the air going to the gap are probably down, and you don't have as much of a chance to get to it as you did with Tommy Edmond out in center field. I, I don't want to understate the importance of Tommy Edmond because of what you were just talking about there. T-Bone, we, we talked how many times last year when we went down to the ballpark with Ollie Marmel about the outfield defense and how it was arguably their biggest issue. Yeah, I saw a spreadsheet about it. On the team. You can't overlook what he did at the end of last season. And I know people will talk about the arm. T-Bone, you've talked about the arm. It, it's not good. It, it's not a center field quality arm. But he gets to so many balls that are hit into the outfield that other center fielders are just incapable of that I think it more than makes up for it. And when you look at what they needed last season, when you've got a below average right fielder with Jordan Walker and you've got an above average slightly uh, left fielder with Lars Newpar, if you've got an elite level center fielder, it masks a lot of the other deficiencies that you have out there. And given what they brought in with Lance Lynn, fly ball pitcher, Kyle Gibson, bit of a ground ball pitcher, but he'll get his fly balls as well. I think it even re- reiterates the importance of having a guy in center field that can play that position at an elite level once again. You missed that in a huge way early on last season. And I think as much as it was the bats in the outfield that were the rotating cast of characters out there, I think they were also looking for, okay, what is our best lineup? And that means our best collection of players, both offensively and defensively. To me, the best collection of players for them in the field this year, it includes Tommy Edmond in center, and it includes Mason Wynn at shortstop. And yeah, those guys both might be net negatives at the plate, and you live with it. Because if they are adding defensively the value that we think that they can, it is more than worth it to have them out there playing every single day. Look at the championship contending teams, guys. They've all got one or two guys in their lineup that aren't great at the plate. The bleeping Astros went to the World Series how many times over the last few years? And they had Martin Maldonado, who is like basically the hitter of me and Alex in the home run derby when he steps up to the plate every time. So you can make it work. I hit the wall. That guy was carrying as much of a a weight behind him. for He was dragging the lineup the way that both Wynn and Edmund could combined this year. So... It's going to be all right if you've got Edmund, who's slightly below league average, and Mason Wynn, who's like a decent amount below league average offensively this year. That gets us to another question, though. 
because they have a lot of options this year in the lineup, a lot of them, because they decided not really to filter through the players the way that we all thought they would going into this offseason. Carlson is back. You still have Yvonne Herrera, who they want to get in the lineup. You've got Gorman and Donovan. You've got Tommy Edmond in the outfield as well. Mason Wynn's going to be up by midseason. Maybe Thomas the JC is an option for this club. T-Bone, I gave you some homework before the show today because I want to see if we end up being on the same page as where Ali Marmol will be for the opening weekend of the season. As of today, in your opinion, what is the Cardinals' best lineup, best-case scenario lineup against a right-handed pitcher? All right, so right-handed pitching. Matt Carpenter's leading off. <laughs> no. What? I think they would go with Donovan at leadoff. I think that's where they would go. Who's he playing? <laughs> I've got him at DH. I think Gorman's the second baseman. I think he's got a better arm, and that Ooh. allows him to turn double plays Yeah, better. but how's his back? Mm, it's there. <laughs> Good. Um, he has one. Could bend I, down for that ball. So I would prefer that they went with Newpar hitting second because I want the two on-base machines at the top of the order. I think they would probably go with Goldschmidt, And I'm honestly though. less worried about where they are in the lineup and more worried about who's in the lineup. Okay. Well, I, then let's but, go. Go for Tanner it. took the Tanner yeah, typical took let's the problem even Brandon, further. Okay? Come on. Uh, let's let's go with Goldie then as the batting second at first base. Sure. Um, <clears throat> batting third, I think he goes back to Gorman. I think he goes Gorman in that three spot. He's at second base. I think you then go with Arenado hitting fifth as your third baseman. Fourth, right? Fourth. Or sorry, fourth as your third baseman. He's not fit, hitting fifth. No. That dude will be in your cleanup spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Contreras. Got to have a spot. I think they probably go Contreras then in that fifth spot as the catcher. I think Newpar is sixth in left. I've got Walker seventh in right. Damn. I've got Wynn eighth at short. And then I've got Tommy ninth Edmund. Tommy Edmund. Yep, that would be mine. And I, again, I, I, if I were building my lineup, I would have Newpar hitting second because him hitting all the way down there feels low for an on-base guy. Sure. But I don't know if they would hit him third between Goldie and Arnado because I think they want more pop. So I think that's the easy one is deciding who's going to be in the lineup tough. against uh, right-handed pitching. Now, what you doing against lefties, T-Bone? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, we're actually not playing those games. We're yeah. just going to be like, sorry, we're not. We're, Let, we're forfeiting today. Let's go on an adventure together, guys. I Carpenter. You tell me if you disagree here. I think he was good last year against lefties. Yeah, sure he was. Yeah, he hit above 100. I think Edmund leads off against lefties because he's so good against left-handed pitching. I agree with that. So I would go Edmund in center. I've got Goldie batting second at first. I slid Contreras up to third. I would go Walker there. Uh, okay, they, they I, won't, but I would. Yeah, we know how veterans are. Um, I, I would either one. I think is fine, but I would go Contreras third. And the reason I did that because I don't think he's going to hit as low as where I have Walker. Arnado fourth. I have Gorman fifth, Walker sixth, Newt seventh, uh, Wynn eighth, and then ninth is who did I? Oh, Donovan. Donovan is the DH batting ninth. And I think the reason they do that with Donovan ninth, my double leadoff theory. Sure. Um, and I think you want to split up those lefties down lower in the so order. You have the same players. Yeah, I, I don't think they're. I don't think you have a person that like Carlson hits left-handers well. I mean, I'm not taking Newt out of the lineup for Carlson. I'm not taking Walker out of the lineup, and I'm not taking Edmund out of the lineup. Can I tell you what Edmund I think is going to happen? Better. I, I think they, could, might, they might take Wynn out of the lineup. I think Contreras becomes your DH and Herrera's the <laughs> catcher in that game. It, I I don't know if they would do that because I think Contreras is the Their guy. Their lineup but, against lefties is what's going to be really interesting going be, into next year. Now, to your point on like because of Carlson, maybe they move Edmund to short. Well, then you know what you didn't do? You didn't end up fixing this whole nine-person thing because 
Mason Wynn is not in my lineup to hit. Mason Wynn is in my lineup to play great defense. And if I'm looking for the best offense and best defensive combination, Carlson is not in that lineup, no matter how good he is against left-handed pitching. The best alignment is Edmund in center, Wynn at short, and you do not move that pillar. You need to be good up the middle. I mean, there's an argument for her being better defensively, but Contreras is the guy because he's got the contract. Short, your best middle infield combination, in my opinion, is Wynn and Gorman. Because I think Gorman and Donovan range. Maybe Donovan's got the slide edge, but Gorman's got the arm to make up for that lapse. The best center fielder is Tom Yemen on this roster. And somebody on the text line said, guys, why would you take Wynn out of the lineup? I wouldn't. I would because not Because of what either. T-Bone just said. But I will be curious to see what it looks like if a weekend of the season, Mason Wynn is hit 120. And they go up against a left-handed pitcher on the mound, and they say, you know what, Dylan Carlson can give us a lot more than that. And Tommy Edmond is more than capable of playing at shortstop for us. And so they put Dylan Carlson in center, uh, Tommy Edmond at shortstop, and they see what that look of the lineup looks like. I I, I hate the idea that you're going to be like platooning Mason Wynn at shortstop. I think he should be in there every single game. I agree. Like. And all of this is getting pre-mad, right? Like, they oh, have well, not I'm done- good at that with <laughs> this not- damn team. <laughs> they have not made any of these decisions. But these are the kinds of things that we need to be on the lookout for of, okay, how how early do they adjust? How quickly do they decide, you know what, this isn't working? And because there is so much urgency to win in 2024, do they pull the plug on something quickly, quicker than they might have a year or two ago and make the change and then maybe if that works, they say, you know what? This is what we've got to do because it's working. And then Dylan Carlson continues to get more opportunities. Again, all of this is just it's stuff that could have been fixed if they made more moves to alleviate any of these internal pressures to go use somebody else in that spot. Hey, go fix this with that. They didn't really alleviate those pressures the way that they could have this offseason. And therefore, it, it, it leaves those other outs for better or for worse. You guys think of what I'm thinking? Bring back Paul DeYoung. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, is there anything Jordan Cairo could do to win this fan base back over? Or is it doomed to just kind of be what it is at this point, which is a lot of you guys want to see him traded either at the deadline in the offseason. We'll talk about that in 15 minutes. Better to forget it coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up, and we're here to make the call. It's BK and Ferrario's Bet It or Forget It on 101 ESPN. Four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line for bet it or forget it. You give us a scenario. We will tell you if we are betting it or forgetting it here on BK and Ferrario. Alex, we've talked a lot about the coaching changes that are taking place this cycle in the NFL today. My bet it or forget it. Better to forget it. Both Mike Vrabel and Bill Belichick will be unemployed by NFL teams in 2024. They'll be unemployed. Mm-hmm. By NFL teams. They might be doing analyst work yeah, somewhere no, or whatever. No, no, they, they will not be head coaches in the NFL this um, year. I'm going to forget this one. You think one of them gets yeah, hired? Yeah, I think one of them gets hired. I, I my, my guess is more Mike Vrabel than Bill Belichick. Like, that one feels like it's flying under the radar of, like, Vrabel's probably done interviews and it's been like, oh, what's Mike Vrabel doing? One of those guys is going to get hired. I can't believe that both of those head coaches just do not get a job. See, I'm going to bet it. I don't think either coach gets a job because oh, cool. I would have thought. Screw me then, right? I would have thought Belichick would have been given the Falcons job by now since he's already interviewed twice. Right. Um, 
And now that they're sending out second interview so short like Ben Johnson, makes me think they're going to pivot elsewhere. And if it's not Atlanta and the Chargers hire Harbaugh, what's the other job for Belichick? What's the other job for Vrabel? I don't think any other job's appealing to those guys. So I'd bet this. I think neither one of them is a head coach in the NFL next year. I'm betting it as well. I can't believe that I'm saying this, but I think that both will end up being left out of this cycle of head coaching interview or head coaching jobs. And I'm shocked by that, man. If you had told me at the beginning of this cycle, guys, we were talking about teams firing their current head coach. That is proven to be able to have the opportunity to hire one of Belichick or Vrabel because those guys are more proven. Like we talked earlier today about the, the culture builders, right? Well, Mike Vrabel, I'm pretty certain can build a culture in an organization. And if, if you're just declining the opportunity to hire that man i i don't know what you're doing as an nfl organization and i know some will say well what do you guys know that these nfl teams don't they're certainly smarter than you yeah these are the same nfl teams that last year t-bone brought it up earlier today all opted against going out and even having the opportunity to sign lamar jackson to an offer sheet they couldn't go quick enough to send out that press release to say hey we're not interested in him the atlanta falcons who this offseason are saying no thanks to both Belichick and Mike Vrabel potentially are the same team that said no thanks to Lamar Jackson last offseason. So I don't want to give them more credit than they deserve. This is crazy to me. I can't believe it, but I'm going to bet it. I think both will end up unemployed in 2024. Guys, bet it or forget it. The Blues win two games in this next five-game stretch. Nah, forget it. Do you think they win more? No, less. <laughs> I think they're. I don't know I if they win a game. There. He he knew you were going negative, but he wanted to get the positive yeah. out of you. Cons- considering that I can't like look at them and go, you know what they're going to do tonight? Here's here's what's going to happen tonight. Here's who's going to show up. There's no way that while they're in, what is it? It's a late January. You think they're having fun in the middle of Calgary and Vancouver where it's cold as hell? Hell yeah, man. No. Vancouver, that's Vancouver cowboy country. Pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. They're not going to show up for that well, game. Well, it's going to be very cool. It's back cold to back, up there. I say they win one game in this five-game stretch is and announce themselves cold? as sellers. It's not that cold up there. Dude, I don't know. I've never been to Vancouver. It's, yeah, it's Canada, like, so I'm assuming it's cold. It's about like Calgary? 45 to 50 degrees right now. Look up Calgary. Calgary's cowboy country. Uh, Calgary right now, it's a little colder. Yeah. <laughs> it turns, okay. it could it be worse. Of, could be little, worse. You could be chillier. in Winnipeg. I think they go one and four in the stretch and announce themselves a seller. Forget it. I mean, they're already there. But Vancouver stays the exact same temperature all day, every day. It's like... A change of three the, degrees one I've, way or the I've other. I've been told Vancouver is the California of Canada. Yeah. That's what I've been told. Yeah. Vancouver, Canada. That's uh, that's what they call it up there. I, I'm going to bet this. I think they win at least two games in this stretch. I think they will beat Columbus because they're terrible. They did already. And oh. I think they will oh. win one of they the other games lost to Columbus. at a minimum between Calgary, Vancouver, Seattle, LA. I think they probably, I think they actually might win tonight. I think tonight's the game that they win. And then I don't think they win another one. You don't think they beat Columbus? No. I've got a heavy 10 But Columbus is really bad, man. Get it. They were really bad when the Blues played against them before. Yeah, but that was on the road. That's a, that's that's the most absolute trap game I've ever seen a trap game because the all-star break is yep. right there. Yeah, but yep. it's the same thing for the Columbus Blue Jackets. They've got a bunch of representatives, I'm sure, in the all-star game. No, they have one. Yeah. Same amount as the Blues. The Battle of the Blues, it's going to go to They're the Blue Jackets. They're both going on vacation, man. They both know what's coming up. So that's going to be a lot like the Coyotes game right before, what was that, the Christmas break? Yeah, yeah. Where I was like, oh, this yeah. is awful Even if you win two, that's not good enough. you got to win four of the next five. Oh, I'm with you. By the way, Seattle has lost each of their past four um, Calgary's going through it a little bit right now. Columbus is terrible. Um, 
in what alternate universe did I just drop into that BK is the optimistic one with this? I can't believe I'm being optimistic that I'm saying they're going to win two of their next five. That's what they've done for like a month <laughs> is win like 45 to 50 percent of the time. Yeah. So I think they'll win two. I'm not and overly optimistic at- about this team. I think they'll still be sellers, but I think they win at least two. All right, T-Bone. Guys, better forget it. BK got me thinking when we were running through our lineup. Forget it. He never gets me thinking. About, about, you know, maybe Jordan Walker hits in the top half of the order against lefties. Better forget it. Jordan Walker will have a better offensive season than Wilson Contreras this year. Ooh, forget this. I think Wilson Contreras is going to have a year where now he's settled. Last year was the year that I would have believed he was going to have an off year because it's that first year. This is one of those years that I think he gets settled into St. Louis. He knows his role. He doesn't have Jack Flaherty throwing him under the bus every single game. Uh, and if Yachty's back, it's going to provide a level of comfort. I think you're going to see a really good season from Wilson Contreras. Still think you're going to have a great year from Jordan Walker, but I'm going to forget this. I think Contreras is better. Wilson Contreras quietly had a really good year offensively last year. Yeah. Um, had- and started off porous. Yeah. Tied for the most doubles of his career, um, second most RBIs in any individual season. If you go by OPS plus, you're a little bit more on the advanced number side of things. It was a top three season for him. I mean, total bases. It was the best season of his major league career. He had a really good offensive season. So do I think that I, I think he's going to have something similar this year, by the way. I think he's pretty much been 20 to 30 percent above league average offensively every year in recent seasons. I think Jordan Walker is going to be better than that. Um, I'll be optimistic. I am really excited to watch Jordan Walker this year. As I saw him at winter warmup, he is a massive human being. Um, so I'll, I'll say bet it. I think it's really close, though. And that is not a slight against Wilson Contreras. I think people estimated how good he was offensively last year. I'm going to bet it as well because I think you see just a little bit less from Contreras. I think just a little bit more towards his career average, which is 811 OPS, 826 last year. Not much of a step back. Do I think Jordan Walker could finish 16% above league average, 20% above league average, and have like an 820 OPS? I think he could do it this year. And I'm with you. I, I think it would be close, but I would bet that Jordan Walker can. I do think Jordan Walker will hit more home runs this year than Wilson Contreras. But if you're looking at like overall OPS stuff, I think it's going to be. Where if I said like take an alt spread of this amount of home runs plus Jordan Walker will hit, what number would you take this year? Like over Wilson 20, Contreras. 25. Like Wilson how many Contreras you think or Walker? For Walker. How many home runs are you thinking this year for 25. Walker? Yeah, somewhere between 20 and 25. Yeah, 25 feels about right to me. I'm thinking 25 as well because for all the talk about him not lifting the ball last year, he sneakily had 16 home runs, which is incredible. It was like Dylan Carlson's first year, where I was like, wait, he had 17. Is that really the one you want to Whoa. throw out right yeah. now? Alright, let's get Relax to a couple of there. these from Jeez. the text line. Better to forget it, the Buffalo Bills winning window remains open despite an embarrassing loss. Uh, I think the winning window is open. I just think that it's going to be harder now. You're going to have to... You're going to have to adjust on the fly if you're moving on from Stefan Diggs and bringing in another weapon that's cheap that can actually benefit with Josh Allen. I think the winning window is still there. I just don't know how much you're going to do if you can't get past Patrick Mahomes. I, I guess to me, it depends on like, what are we defining as a winning window? Like make the playoffs, like maybe win around two. Sure. I, I would bet that if we're saying like can be a Super Bowl contender. I'm out. Forget See, I it. I think they can be if they. They need, a, they need a draft like what the Chiefs had last year. Not this 2023 draft, but 2022 where they got McDuffie. They got George Karloftis. Like they, they added a ton of talent to their roster. They got um, 
Josh Williams. No, he was a few years prior. But they they had a bunch of pieces that were in that draft that helped their defense get turned around over the last two seasons. The Bills need that. Their defense is actually the bigger problem for them. Their offense will be fine. They've got Josh Allen. They'll be all right. Their defense was a sieve down the stretch, and it got masked over by the fact that they didn't go up against a ton of great teams. So I, I think they need some some real talent influx on the defensive side of the ball. Better to forget it by the All-Star break. Victor Scott will be the Cardinal center fielder. I'll bet it. I'm going to forget it. I think they have him on the plan that Mason one was on last year, where he's going to be in AAA for the vast majority of the season. I think there's going to be an injury somewhere, and they're going to be forced to bring up Victor Scott. I, I'm going to forget it because I'm not going to assume an injury. I'll forget it. And I think you're right. I think it'll be the Mason Wynn plan, and you use Tommy Evan as kind of the stopgap this year. And that's why I love this two-year deal, because next year he's there for if Mason Wynn struggles, yep. and he's there for uh, Victor Scott struggles when he's up up at the big league level. Or he's trade bait next offseason, and exactly. people know exactly what he's going to make. Yeah. Either way, uh, it's a good move by the Cardinals. All right, coming up in 15 minutes, we're hitting the BK and Ferrario Rewind. But next, Jordan Cairo is still a lightning bolt for discussion among Blues fans. Is there anything he can do to win you back over or... Is he doomed to be the guy that fans continue to want to trade every single opportunity that there is? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. T-Bone on BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We'll get to the rewind coming up here in just a little bit. But Alex, we've been talking a lot today about the fan survey that uh, Jeremy Rutherford put out over on The Athletic. And one of the questions that he put in here was, what's the confidence level from Blues fans in Kairou's continued improvement and being worth his eight-year, $65 million contract? The most common choice among the... Uh, the scale of one to five, five being the most confident, one being no confidence whatsoever, was a three, somewhere in between. Not really sure he's going to get there, but hopefully, right? And then some twos, some fours, 10% of the clicks were at a one, no confidence whatsoever that Kairou is going to continue to improve and be worth that contract. Alex, I, I feel like he is the guy that has become the lightning rod for discussion here in St. Louis, the way that it once was with Vladimir Tarasenko. And before that, it was prior to the um, Stanley Cup with Jay Bomeister. Like there's always somebody that's highly paid with big expectations that you're either on one side or the other, really, when it comes to what their future outlook should be here in St. Louis. And that is now Jordan Cairo came to a head, certainly after his comments about Craig Berube and his, his performance hasn't really lived up, honestly, even for myself, who is probably higher on Kyrou than most, to the expectations this season. Is there anything he can do in your mind that would change that the rest of this season? Or is this just kind of where we're at with Jordan Kyrou? I, I think there is something he can do to accomplish and get in the good graces of Blues fans. But it's going to have to be in terms of him adapting his game uh, different than what he is right now. And the way I say that is, let me ask you guys this question. Do you believe that the style Jordan Kyrou plays can win a Stanley Cup? Like, can you win a cup with Jordan with Kyrou on the team? style of player, yes. Playing the way that he does right now. Yes. 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 I believe he can. I think he can, but I think you have to surround him with a lot of players who cover up his warts. And I, that takes a lot to accomplish. Like, when I look at the way and the style that you have to win a Stanley Cup... 
it, it, even Vladimir Tarasenko went through it. Like you have to adapt into a style that is less rush, more forecheck, less offense, more defense. And I think he's done that at times this season, but I do still think that there's a lot of focus on the, the rush style, the me style of play. And that doesn't work in the Stanley cup. And the reason I bring this up is there was a quote from Drew Bannister. Uh, it was before that first Washington capitals game. And I just want to read this to you. Um, this was from Bannister going into that game. I think in general, for a lot of teams and analytics, the rush game has been something that people have pushed on possession. I think we're number one in the league in chances off of the rush. He's correct. They're the best team in terms of team chances off of the rush. But if you look at top teams, a lot of them aren't good rush teams. They're better for checking teams. And that leads to offense for them. That leads to playing below the tops of the circle and interns. That makes the better a defensive team because they're playing less in their own zone. It's more predictable. We have to get to that level. I, you can win with a player that plays like that, but when it comes to postseason time, you have to adapt to a style that is a winning style, and that's the part that I question. Can he get to it? I didn't think Vladimir Tarasenko could, and he obviously did when the brights were the lightest, BK. Sure. So can Kyra do it? Absolutely he can, but when you ask the question, what can he do to get back into the graces of Blues fans, I think it's going to have to come to that. It's going to have to be a come to God moment for Jordan Kyrie that says, man, I'm going to have to alter the way that I play if we want to have success. Yeah, I, I think he can when we talk about Jordan Kyrie. I mean, what is the number one frustration for Blues fans with Jordan Kyrie? It, it's the un, unsure of what you're getting from him night in, night out. Like each night, Jordan Kyrie should be viewed as a difference maker. And I feel like even though this year, I think his all-around game has been better this year. I think the offensive numbers aren't there, and it's a little odd that it's not. I think the biggest reason for that is he just hasn't produced on the power play, which is another concern. But I think it's the nightly basis you go, that guy is going to be a factor for us. That guy is going to be a potential difference maker for us. And there are nights where he legitimately is, where he gets nine shots on goal, six shots on goal, ends up with maybe just a goal, but you know what? He had six shots on goal. And then there are the nights where he kind of has only one shot on goal and kind of floats around and you don't really notice him. And then there's more conversation of, oh, do you have to break up the top line? I think if you start to see that consistency where it is, he's a difference maker nightly, because that was the thing for Vladdy, in my opinion, was – Yes, Vladdy had a lot of the same tendencies of Kairou where defensively he wasn't always locked in. But I knew most nights, like, hey, I know he's going to be a difference maker, and if he gets a shooting lane, he gets a shot on goal, he can put you on the board like that. And I don't necessarily feel that way about Jordan Kairou yet. I think Kairou is representative of a bigger frustration that people have with certain style of hockey players. Everybody wants in the NBA a floor spacing, three-point shooting big man until they see what that actually looks like where he's probably going to be long and lanky and doesn't give you a whole lot of interior presence defensively. And that gets really frustrating. The Missouri Tigers have that this year with Vanover, who's over seven foot, shoots a lot of threes. He's okay defensively in the interior, but more often than not, he's missing these three-point shots, and it's frustrating as hell to see a dude that big standing at the three-point line. A lot of people in, uh, in baseball. You want a pure power hitter, right? A lot of Cardinals fans have been begging for somebody like a Kyle Schwarber until you would, until you feel in a game what it's like to watch a guy that hits 200 but hits a bunch of ding-dong Johnsons. It's hard. It's frustrating to watch a guy that strikes out about 40% of the time, gets on base about 32% of the time, and hits 200 for the season, even though it comes with a lot of home runs. And I think it's really hard to watch a guy that is a pure goal scorer in the NFL, in NHL that doesn't bring a whole lot else to the table. It's easier when that guy comes in the package of – He's 6'3", 200 pounds, he's running around or skating around, he's hitting things. Like, 
when he plays a full 200-foot game, man, it's really nice to watch that. Matthew Kachuk, for example. You can live with his games where he doesn't score because he does other things that contribute towards winning. When you have a pure goal scorer that wins with speed, man, there's not a lot else that that guy's going to do that helps you win unless he's going out there and scoring. The following players, Alex, over the past three seasons, this is not me cherry-picking this year or last year where Jordan Cairo was really good. It's the last three seasons. Following players have more instances in which they played at least 15 minutes on the ice and did not score a goal than Jordan Kyrou, Alex Dabrinkit, JT Miller, Brady Kachuk, Brock Besser, Mitch Marner, Kevin Fiala, Matthew Kachuk, and Steven Stamkos. All of those players have more instances over the last three seasons playing 15 minutes on the ice and not scoring a goal than Jordan Kyrou. What we see with Kairou is symbolic of what it means to have a pure goal scorer. Yes, he goes through scoring droughts. Yes, you would like to see him score in more games than he does. But what we're seeing is what this looks like, man. And so I think a lot of this is just a a harsh reality that we're all having to face as Blues fans of. Do you want this kind of player on your team? The answer might be no, and that's fair. You just asked, can you win with a player like Jordan Kairou? I don't know. I would say yes. A lot of people would probably say no, but I think that's more representative of this style of player, like an Alex Dabrinkit, Jordan Kairou, et cetera, than it is specific to Jordan Kairou's game. So that's where I'm at on him. I, I don't know that there's anything he can do, because realistically, I, I think this is the player that he is. A lot of those people that you named, though, I feel like do more when they're not, or do other things when they're not scoring goals that impact the game. But that's what I said. Like, I'm with you. Many of these guys, like, Brock Besser is a bigger dude, and so he's going to impact the game in other ways. Jordan Kyrou's not. Like, the comp for Jordan Kyrou is Alex Dabrinkit. Yeah. And do you want that or not? If you do, like, Alex, you were high on Alex Dabrinkit a couple of off-seasons ago. Well, he's gone 139 games over the past three years in which he played at least 15 minutes and did not score a goal. That's a lot of games, man. For context, Jordan Kyrou's at 124. So he had 15 more of those than Jordan Cairo has. So he disappears from games a lot of the time. But when he scores, man, he is somebody that can completely change the outcome of a game for you. So I don't know. That's that's really the question that a lot of, a lot of fans have to ask themselves is, do I want this style of player on the team? Can you win with it? And I, I think the answer is yes. I understand if your answer is no, though. I think the answer is yes. But again, you have to cover him with a lot of players. And that's the tough part when he's making $8.125 million. That's the that's the tough part when and that's why I've been on the stance of like I'm not sure you can do that with three guys at eight million dollars if you're gonna have to cover for one of them. Like I I you go down all the time and say, like, is Jordan Cairo, how would he be viewed on another playoff team? I think Jordan Cairo is a second line player on a playoff team. And I don't think you can I don't think you can pay that eight point one two five million dollars in the middle of a retool when you're trying to exit out of it. I think right now they've got an identity issue. He's Alex Estibo, and I'm BK. We'll see the Blues back in action, including Jordan Cairo tonight against the Calgary Flames. Pre-game with Alex begins at seven o'clock. Not too late for this one tonight, but tomorrow we've got the Blues at the Canucks. Uh, pre-game for that one will start tomorrow at eight Woo! o'clock. Coming Not up too next, late. we're hitting the rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on PK and Ferrario brought to you by Gloria Loom, your home sold guaranteed realty. Selling your home begins at GloriaHasTheBuyers.com.
on BK. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. You can also find us on YouTube, youtube.com slash 101 ESPN STL. The studio cams are powered by the Air Alliance team. Alex, before we get out of here today, there have been some viewership numbers that have been announced by the NFL. The NFL's four divisional round playoff games last weekend averaged 40 million viewers, according to the league. It is the highest viewership since 1988 for the divisional round of the NFL's postseason. Do you guys have a belief or a view as to why this year was so significant in terms of viewership? Now, the Chiefs-Bills game was the highest viewed divisional round game Which makes ever. sense. That's the Manning-Brady matchup. Is that, is that where we're at? I, is is Allen Mahomes now that? I, I feel like the they absolutely are. I think it's Allen Mahomes and Burrow. Any two of those three when they go head to head is that feel. The reason I felt like the playoffs in general were so watched is because I felt like it was wide open. Every single game felt like, man, I could see Houston Texans beating the Baltimore Ravens. Like you went into that wild card weekend saying, like, I don't know who's going to win this game. I don't think anybody felt like there were clear cut winners, which is why it was such a draw for people because. Common NFL fans are just like, damn, this is a good matchup. I think it was good, too, that the Chiefs were seen as kind of like the underdog yeah. this yeah. time around. Whereas previously, it was so overwhelming. That was the team. And now you get them watching. in a different... And then the Lions are such a lovable team. Yeah. And you're like, everybody's kind of pulling for them. I, there's some really good storylines this year. The Packers, this team that had been like the favorite for two decades... And now they've got this young, up-and-coming quarterback, so they become the plucky underdog as well. Good weekend. Yeah, I, I think it's like threefold. I think it is what you said. I think it's more. it was more open this year going into the playoffs because I don't think we can pinpoint a favorite still. Um, I think it's the elite quarterbacks that are in the AFC. I mean, Allen, Mahomes, Lamar Jackson were playing. And I didn't mention C.J. Stroud. Why? Because I think he falls into this third category, which was there were just a lot of fun storylines going mm-hmm. into it. You know, you got Kansas City, who hadn't really been themselves, and they got to go on the road for the first time. You get Detroit, the fun-loving Detroit Lions. You got C.J. Stroud, the young, hot quarterback now that's playing really well, along with Jordan Love with the Green Bay Packers. Like I, I think those three equal to this just great excitement around the NFL for this this past playoff weekend. Yeah, I, it was a good weekend of uh, football, and people on the text line are also making a fair point. It's more people that are gambling. And oh, yeah. I, I totally could see that, that as well, where there's there's more and more um, states that are legalizing sports betting, and that is getting more and more people highly interested not in the outcome of the game, even when they're blowouts, potentially. Oh, yeah. Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. Fast Lane's coming up next. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.